Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, we left Professor Robinson and Dr. Smith searching for a lost laser pistol. Unaware, the professor would, within moments, be plunged into an incredible encounter with a deadly alien spirit. There it is, on the floor of the cave. Well, for two buttons and an old shoestring, I'd make you climb down there and get it. Oh, you wouldn't. You know that I have a phobia about heights. I get extremely dizzy. Losing the pistol was an accident. You have only to ask Will. I did. He said you heard this sound. Drew your laser. And then that small lizard appeared. You screamed, dropped the pistol, and ran. You have your facts completely all right, sir. In the first place, the lizard was not small. It was huge. In the second place, I did not drop my pistol. The reptile flung it from my grasp. And in the third place, I did not scream and run. I made a calm, orderly retreat. Knowing your unquestioned bravery in the past, I can believe that. All right, I'll get the laser. All you've got to do is hold on to the rope. Yes, yes, I can do that. Never fear, Smith is here. You're in good hands. All right, now pay it out slowly. Yes, I can do that. Careful. All right, slow. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kanto. I mean, Kurt. (laughs) Kurt, today we're talking about the 29th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled, Follow the Leader. Now, Kurt, I have been getting emails and messages about this episode since we started the show, and I know there's some critics out there that say I don't listen to their concerns. Actually, they're not wrong, because I've been trying to push this off as long as possible. Possible, because I don't want to be done with the first season, but it's finally here. Yeah, I've grown pretty attached to those black and white episodes. Embracing the new color season is going to be awkward. You know, like if your parents got divorced, remarried, and then bring home new step-parents, and then they act as if nothing has changed. Sorry, Charlie, it isn't the same. Things have changed, and we're going to need time to adjust. Yeah, we're going to need time to adjust. And for a minute, I was thinking, well, maybe I could just turn the color off on my TV. But somehow, I don't think that's going to bring back the magic. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, a few production notes before we begin with this story. 43-year-old Barney Slater is back with his ninth script for Lost in Space. 
His last teleplay, All That Glitters, was superb, and this one I think measures up as well. Slater's story seems to have it all. Mystery, jump scares, dramatic conflict, and there's a little high-powered action as well. There's also excellent dialogue for all the regular characters, and it's a good example of how you can have a serious episode and still feature a good dose of Jonathan Harris's trademark humor. Guy Williams is given a rare vehicle to work his acting chops, as well as his Zorro-like swordsmanship, but it was almost too good for CBS, who sent editor Tony Wilson several worried revisions to keep the episode from scaring the daylights out of the kids at home. Yeah, I'm amazed CBS didn't ruin it, because this is a standout episode in the suspense and nail-binding department. Previously, censors made Irwin Allen throw his punches for scenes far less terrifying than the ones we're going to see in this episode. But maybe their regular censor got sick that week, and all sorts of good stuff slipped by. So, who knows? Maybe we owe it all to his absence and a good dose of food poisoning. Thanks, food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think they were right to be a little scared, because it is kind of a dark episode, but still worth it. Yeah. Well, calling action on the set again for the fourth time is the series' most prolific director, 42-year-old Don Richardson. He'll eventually helm 26 episodes of the show. And even though I wasn't inspired by his previous work on The Lost Civilization, I really got into this one, Kurt. There were several cinematic choices with camera angles and lighting he made filming this episode, which greatly added to the various moods that developed during the story. And I also think he did a great job getting first-class performances from the cast. Of course, some of the credit falls back on Slater's excellent script for that, but nonetheless, Richardson deserves his share of the kudos. Well, you know, I think some of the credit for the excellent acting, actually goes to Jonathan Harris because he had so often upstaged Guy Williams for the last 28 episodes that Guy was probably desperate to finally get the star treatment he was promised at the beginning of the series. So Guy probably went all out not to blow the best script he got yet, and he, he definitely delivers. Oh, he does, and I think that's an excellent point you make about Harris probably reining himself in just a little bit. It certainly works in this one. You know, I mean, he inspired Guy in a way. You can have a pep talk, that's one thing, but to sit there and just pull the attention away from Guy 28 episodes in a row, that must have just driven Guy nuts. And it's sort of like, finally, a script I can sink my teeth into. <laughs> yep, that's a great point. Well, pleasing to Irwin was the fact that Richardson also managed to shoot this episode without the excessive overruns he had on The Lost Civilization. It was filmed from the 31st of March through the 8th of April, 1966. That's seven days. The episode aired on the 27th of April, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on August 17, 1966. All the regular characters are featured, and joining the castaways is veteran actor Gregory Morton, who performed the voice of Kanto from the planet Quasti. With over 100 screen credits from the 50s through the 70s, Morton's voice talents would be used again on Lost in Space as the voice of Judge Iko in the Season 2 episode, The Prisoners of Space. He also worked for Alan again on The Time Tunnel and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. One other note, this episode made generous use of music tracked from Bernard Herrmann's score for Journey to the Center of the Earth, which I think really enhanced the sinister mood of some of the scenes, especially the scenes in Canto's Crypt. Yeah, that was some great music Bernie did for that movie. Yep, it really was. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts out with the narrator catching us up from last episode's cliffhanger. 
Where Professor Robinson, intending to retrieve a lost laser pistol, was being lowered down into a deep cave by Dr. Smith. But suddenly, an ill-timed planet quake caused the frantic physician to release the rope, sending the professor plunging helplessly the long way down to the sandy cave floor, where he lands with a rolling thud and for a brief moment appears to be as dead as a coffin nail. Well, higher up in the cave, things aren't going too much better for old Zachary. Far from making a calm and orderly retreat, we're shown the faint-hearted physician dodging falling boulders and a shower of debris as he scampers his way around stalagmites towards the light of the cave's exit. Running faster than ever before, Dr. Smith finally emerges from the rocky opening, then pauses a few yards from the entrance where he turns around just in time to see a sheer rock wall slide down, completely blocking the cave's entrance. The camera cuts to Smith's traumatized face as he gazes back at the sealed cave and moans, Poor Professor Robinson. That door-like closure had me scratching my head, but more on that later. Yeah, it looked like a deliberately cut slab of rock that dropped down like a guillotine. You know, not very natural or convincing, but scary nonetheless. I will say this much for the planet quake, though. Normally, Lost in Space relies on such quakes way too often to either create a crisis, like in this instance, or solve a crisis, like it did when it saved John from being executed in the Lost Civilization, a conveniently timed earthquake. Yep. The the timing is so coincidental you have to either believe in God or some sort of supernatural force making it happen. But in this specific instance, it turns out there is a supernatural force that could be making the quake happen at this exact instance for a specific reason. And we're about to meet that force face to mask. Ah, great point. I hadn't thought about that. Yes, those quakes usually are sort of a deus ex machina, but this case, pretty pivotal to the story. Yes, and we know that the power that we're going to encounter has the ability to literally move rocks. Indeed. Well, with the planet quake starting to subside, the doctor doesn't linger to mourn. Instead, he beats feet out of frame and back to the safety of the Jupiter 2. You know, although I'm sure Smith was glad to have saved his own precious skin, it did seem in that moment that he was genuinely disturbed by the thought of the professor being entombed inside that collapsing cavern. Yeah, that and also having to tell the family about it. How <laughs> am I going to worm my way out of that one? Uh, yeah. Cutting back inside the cave, the quake ends as suddenly as it began. And thankfully, we see John's voyage to the bottom of the sand wasn't a death sentence because he's slowly regaining consciousness. Unsteadily, the professor picks himself off the ground and unties from the rope as he scopes out his gloomy surroundings. Staggering back over to the rock wall, John peers upward from where he fell and shouts, Smith! Smith! Dr. Smith! Can you hear me? 
but other than the echo of his own voice, there's no reply. Looking frustrated and a little disoriented, John turns away from the unscalable rock wall to search for another way out, but no sooner does he than a look of shock abruptly breaks over his face. The camera cuts quickly to the unexpected sight that has our space pioneer so astonished. It's a large, Temple of Doom-like chamber. Filled with ancient relics from some alien civilization, there are columns, strange statues, pottery, and primitive tools and weapons scattered all about. But the center of the chamber is dominated by a large stone staircase that leads high up to what appears at first glance to be another temple-like passageway covered by cloth drapes, flanked by more columns and two creepy alien cat statues. Yeah, there is so much cool eye candy in this scene, my eyeballs nearly popped out. This is in stark contrast to those limbo sets the series often uses where the walls are just darkness and a few drapes are hung here and there, you know, maybe blowing in the breeze. It's a a welcome (laughs) visual change of pace as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, it's rich. It's got way too much. You can't even really concentrate on any one particular thing. It's a little overwhelming. So yeah, nice that they saved this for the last episode. Well, thinking it could be a possible means of escape from the subterranean trap, the woozy professor silently makes his way through a large half-open stone door and into the chamber proper to investigate further. It's a strange sight, but then again, this isn't the first time our castaways have been confronted by evidence of, or even an actual, underground civilization on pre-planus. There were the ruins they explored in the Hungry Sea, and of course, they just visited the lost civilization a couple of episodes ago. And then they had the Illuminati that were supposed to be in the first series, but weren't. So that's three civilizations right there, and now here's number four. Right. Yeah, and don't forget number five would be Mr. Nobody. He was also another cave critter. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, there's all these caves with aliens on this planet, but none of them seem to know anything about each other. Yeah, what they need is some sort of, like, alien app, pre planet cave app, and they could all, like, oh, okay, well, we can meet here at this and It's true. Uh, They got more caves and lost in space than Batman. Yep. Well, the camera tracks along with Professor Robinson as he deliberately trudges through the chamber and swivels his head around, taking in the fantastic surroundings. John's shaken back into reality when he backsteps into the base of those impressive stone steps. Pausing for a second, he looks up again at the curtain-covered area on the landing at the top of the steps, then cautiously begins to climb them. Again, the camera tracks along with John. This time, Richardson uses an impressive crane shot to follow the professor as he ascends the stairs. Before we go to credits, John's spidey sense must be tingling, I know mine was, because when he finally reaches the platform at the top, he hesitates from pulling back the curtain to reveal what's behind. Instead, he takes another slow look around the alien chamber and back in the direction that he came from. In a nice little bit of foreshadowing, we're given a quick cutaway look down the steps towards the chamber's entrance, with the huge stone door still slightly ajar. Reassured that so far, nothing seems to be amiss, the professor turns back to face the drapes. The eerie music grows slowly to a climax. As John steps closer, 
reaches out a hand and pauses for another agonizing, tension-building second before finally ripping the curtain away. But instead of a hallway to freedom, we're confronted with yet another stone door and even creepier music. This door is closed tight, and it's smaller than the one at the entrance to the chamber, but it's impressively adorned with some bizarre alien symbology that looks almost Roman in its design. Your instincts are correct, sir. That weird pole with the metal wreath and open hand on top of it was actually a Roman signifer. The open hand was called a manus, and it represented the oath of loyalty each soldier swore to their leader. Mm. The standard bearers have evolved through the centuries into our modern-day military guidons. Whoever carries those emblems or the flag stands up front next to the leader, and it's considered a great honor. Even today, guidon bearers are encouraged to protect their colors from capture at all costs because it represents the honor and the power of the unit. Whenever you see those World War II documentaries of the Russian soldiers throwing down the captured German guidons before Stalin in their final victory parade, that was supposed to be a great humiliation to the Nazis. Unfortunately for Stalin, however, he was never able to capture the most important symbol of all the guidons, the infamous blood flag, Mm. which was the actual flag the Nazis carried through the failed coup attempt that they made in Munich in 1923. That flag got soaked in the blood of a killed SA fighter, and it became a sacred object to the Nazis. Hitler used that blood flag to consecrate all the other military guidons, and it was rumored that as long as that blood flag successfully eluded capture and destruction, then the spirit of the Third Reich was still alive and would return in the future. Now, it drove Stalin nuts knowing that somewhere out there, that flag continued to remain hidden and eluded capture even to this day. Now, this arcane historical footnote has a lot of relevance to this particular episode of Lost in Space, as we'll soon discover behind that stone panel. And don't forget, the title of this story is follow the leader, which happens to be another purpose of the guide on. It represents the visual guide that the troops literally follow and march behind. Now, this is only a theory, but it's possible that the writer, Barney Slater, who was a fighting age in World War II, may have heard and used this blood flag myth to inspire the plot to this episode, because both themes have a lot in common. So stay tuned and judge for yourself. Ooh, cue the creepy music again. That story has a chill running up and down my spine, Kurt. Yes, sir. (laughs) That's crazy. I knew you'd like it. Uh, Yes, I do like it. (laughs) Well, now, just in case you think I went overboard talking too much about that open hand signifer earlier, did you notice that it mysteriously moves around the room during this scene? It was there when he first walked in. But then it disappears when he climbs up the stairs and finds it hiding behind the curtain. In fact, when John hears the noise and looks down at the closing door, we can clearly see that the signifer is no longer next to the door. Only three spears are. But then when he runs down the stairs to catch the closing door, shazam! It's reappeared right smack in the foreground. In fact, it's so close to us that if it were a real hand, it could slap us. Coincidence? I think not. 
Oh, man. I totally missed that. Oh, now I got to go back and watch it again. <laughs> yeah, well, Mr. Blu-ray, it'll be painfully obvious to you. Okay. Wow. Well, that crazy door with those Roman symbols on it could still lead to a way out. So despite some obvious trepidation, Professor Robinson grasps the edge of the door with one hand and tries to swing it open. At first it doesn't budge, so putting his back and both arms into it, he tries again to pry loose the stubborn closure. Frustratingly, it refuses to yield, but before he can try again, we hear the dreadful sound of rock scraping across the floor, which causes the professor to swing around and see the huge stone entrance door heartlessly closing, all by itself. Oh dear. With this fireworks-filled teaser nearing a climax, John wastes no time, bolting down the steps and racing across the chamber just seconds before the entrance completely shuts closed. Grabbing onto the edge of the oversized door, the professor struggles to keep it from slamming shut, but it's no use. Despite throwing everything he has into it, John has to give in and let go, only barely managing to keep his fingers from being crushed as the door seals tightly closed. Banging his fists on the stones in futility, it appears that the professor's circumstances have gone from bad to worse. Trapped by a cave-in at the bottom of a deep cavern is bad enough, but now he's doubly trapped inside this strange archaeological ruin that could turn out to be his crypt. I've got plenty of questions. Just how did that massive stone door close all by itself? And oh, by the way, what's behind that other door? Is it a way out of here? Or is there more danger lurking inside? I'm not sure even Indiana Jones could handle this level of stress. Ah. Well, this episode is certainly off to a thrilling start. I can hardly wait until after the opening titles to find out how Professor Robinson gets himself out of this jam. So don't change that dial, kids. When we return from the opening titles, we're outside the Jupiter 2 as the episode credits flash by. Will's seated on a table next to the robot while he works on his cybernetic sidekick's power pack. Leaping down from the table, our boy genius finally reinstalls the pack, just as Don and Judy emerge from the ship's open airlock. As the robot whirs back to life, the boy lectures, This is the second time this week I've had to recharge your power pack. You sure are using a lot of energy. It is Dr. Smith's fault. He is constantly talking to me. Judy interjects with a giggle, Well, you don't have to reply. Don adds, She's right. All you have to do is tune him out by shutting off your audio unit. But before B-9 can give a snappy comeback, the calm is interrupted by the familiar cries for A frantic and out-of-breath Dr. Zachary Smith scurries into camp and is stopped by Don. Oh, Major, a dreadful calamity has befallen us. One moment everything was safe and sound, and then the next... Trying to make sense of Smith's babbling, Major West says, Now, now, take it easy. But instead, the doctor takes a seat and continues his hysterical rant. The whole cave started to shake. I barely escaped with my life. But it's not my fault. There's nothing I could have done to help Professor Robinson. Stunned, Judy asks, Something's happened to Dad? Yes, yes. 
Grabbing Smith by the shoulders, Don orders, Smith, take a hold of yourself. Now what's this all about? But all the distraught doctor can manage is to pathetically moan, Oh dear, oh dear. You better answer me. We've lost Professor Robinson, sealed up in a dark catacomb. The camera cuts from a close-up of Smith's tortured face to Will's, who's wearing an expression of utter anger and shock. I don't believe it. Oh, William, William, it's a sad truth. Judy grabs Will's shoulders and in a shaky voice assures little brother that father's all right. She's sure he is. You know, I I find these scenes very frustrating, yet realistic. If you have a three- or six-year-old and they somehow hurt themselves and get scared, trying to get the information out of them is the scariest part. They're either crying too hard or they're too hysterical to talk. They behave like someone's been hit by a car and killed, and then it turns out it's an ant bite or something minor, like somebody is standing on someone else's shadow or something, you know. But <laughs> until you can get them to calm down enough to understand what the issue is, your imagination just runs wild. Of course, Dr. Smith is 50 or 60, yet he acts just the same way. It must just drive them nuts. <laughs> Judy runs back inside the ship to tell Mother what's happened. She's followed closely by Will and the Major, who takes charge, instructing her to have the ladies gather up some lights. They'll start digging right away, including B-9, who earnestly adds, I also will assist. Bringing up the rear of the group is the somewhat calmer Dr. Smith, who's stopped mid-stride on his way back into the Jupiter by West, who barks, Smith, you get some picks and shovels. Will and I will get the rest of the equipment we need. Reflexively grasping his lower back, Smith painfully objects. Oh, Major, my recent experience has exhausted me. My delicate back simply will not stand to... <laughs> Don seethes. You heard what I said. Then growls with a little shove. Move! That shove causes Smith to backstep right into the mute robot, who somehow manages to remain upright despite the collision. But Dr. Smith refrains from apologizing for running into B-9. Instead, he turns his ire towards his old punching bag, shouting, Ah! Out of my way, you ninny! Then in a huff, hurries away to gather up the needed implements. You know, Kurt, I really love the way that shot was all composed because it had Major West on the left side of the frame facing Dr. Smith in the middle, who's next to the robot on the right. And the robot is just silently facing the camera, enjoying it as Don bullies Dr. Smith. Then when West shoves Smith into the robot, the impact causes B-9 to bend way (laughs) over and then recoil almost cartoon-like back into Dr. Smith, which just infuriated the Miffed Doctor to no end. I thought it was very well staged and well played by the actors, but the best was the way that the robot just takes it all in with a golden silence that was worth a thousand words. Yeah, he should have said like uh, Alan Alda does to Woody Allen in Crimes and Misdemeanors. If it bends, it's funny, but if it breaks, it's (laughs) It's not not funny. funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Well, one thing that bothered me again, like in The Lost Civilization, is that no one at the Jupiter camp seems to have experienced that magnitude 10 planet quake. Because when Smith comes running into the camp, they're all clueless about it. At least they don't comment on it. I guess Preplanus has some very localized seismic tremors. Yeah, although, you know, to be fair, it's easier to ignore and forget about a tremor on the surface because there's no apparent danger. In a cave, it's terrifying because rocks can rain down and crush everybody below, you know, and bury them alive. Now, I love to go in caves, but... 
never in California or any earthquake-prone area for that exact reason. Because I was in Palo Alto during that 1989 earthquake, the one that was 6.9. I don't know if you remember that. It was like I said, if you're not there, it's not as big of a deal. But Was that the one that collapsed part of the Bay Bridge or whatever? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't the Bay Bridge. It was a, a highway bridge for a double-decker highway bridge. Oh, yeah. Thing. And I just walked out of the Stanford Daily office and I saw the sidewalk way up ahead of me lift up a few inches and sit back down. And this effect, it rippled down the cement towards me like it was a plastic tarp on a giant swimming pool and someone had just jumped in at the far end. There was no noise and I didn't know what was going on, even as the shock wave reached me, gently lifted me up and then set me right back down again. And I thought, did that just happen? I wasn't scared. I was just confused until several clay shingles fell down from the roof above me and shattered at my feet. And then I thought, holy crap, this is an earthquake. Get the hell out of here. So I would never cave in a quake-prone area. And to be honest, it still scares me whenever I'm inside one anywhere (laughs) where my imagination begins to wonder, what if it happened here, you know? But Mm. yeah, so I could could forgive them for not paying attention to that. If you're you're on the surface and it happens, it's just sort of like a, eh. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Well, next we're back in the chamber with Professor Robinson. Some time has passed because we see he's managed to wedge a sword blade into the tight crevasse between the giant stone door and the wall. His valiant effort to force the door open is unexpectedly interrupted by a strange voice speaking in perfect English, echoing from off the screen. You are strong, but even the strength of a hundred men could not move that rock. Ooh. Unnerved, the professor instinctively withdraws the sword from the door crack as he swings his head around to see who, or perhaps what, was addressing him. Backing away from the sealed exit with the saber firmly in hand, John challenges the disembodied voice. Who said that? At first, there's no reply. John cautiously approaches a nearby drawn curtain that he suspects might be hiding who's ever speaking to him. The voice continues. Your strength will serve me well. But when John rips down the curtain, instead of a live being, there's only an oversized Greco-Roman statue of some female goddess revealed. Anxiously turning around in frustration, the professor scans the chamber for any signs of life and shouts, Who's here? Where are we? With his back now to the large statue, John can't see what we're shown, a close-up of that statue starting to wobble ominously. Then, as if it had been disturbed by some insidious force, the statue suddenly tumbles over. nearly crushing the professor who manages to dodge out of the way in the nick of time. That was a close one. But don't relax yet, kids, because before John can process all this, he looks up at another looming threat. (laughs) This time, it's a giant dinosaur emerging from another cavern inside this devilish temple of doom. Courtesy of some nice stock footage, 
probably from Irwin Allen's feature, The Lost World, because it appears to be another reptile that's been tricked out with some prosthetic spinal sail fins, just like we saw back in the Keeper episodes. How'd you like that one? Oh, yeah, I love those dinosaur scenes. It it may not be the fancy pants Ray Harryhausen stop-motion special effects. In fact, it might be the lowbrow iguana (laughs) with the (laughs) embarrassing plastic spinal fin. But, you know, it's cool just the same. And I guess he was trying to be a, what, a dimetrodon. It did look suitably like it. And uh, I love those scenes. Oh, yeah, it was cool. While reacting to the screaming monstrosity, Professor Robinson trades his sword for a nearby harpoon-sized spear and prepares to do battle with the terrible lizard. Which made me think, hey, maybe for once Smith wasn't exaggerating. Could this be the huge reptile that snatched the laser pistol from his hand earlier? (laughs) Oh, good call. Although that reminds me, where's that laser pistol Smith dropped at the bottom of the cave? You know, John might want to find it. It could come in pretty handy about now. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we'll ever find out. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, we don't get much time to ponder that possibility, though, because just when it looks like Barney the Dinosaur is about to strike... There's a sudden electronic pop! And the beast disappears in a flash. That was weird. Looking confused and a little worn out from this rapid succession of frights, John is further befuddled when the unseen voice announces, I am pleased. You have courage. Dazed, the professor shouts back, Where are you? As he scans the area for any signs of his tormentor, the voice commands, Approach, John Robinson. Which causes John to look up. Professor Robinson raises his spear in a defensive posture. The camera cuts to a shot looking at the top of the stone staircase, where we see that Roman-decorated door begin to slowly creep open. But when the door is fully opened, we're confronted by another astonishing sight. Far from a passageway out, or a live alien, in fact, that door was concealing the crypt of what appears to be a very dead mummified being. What's more, that mummy is sporting an ornate golden ceremonial mask. Ah, that golden mask, by the way, was very reminiscent of the one that King Arthur's illegitimate son and his mortal enemy, Mordred, wore in the 1981 John Borman movie, Excalibur. (laughs) Remember that movie? Yes. Yeah. It had that ending where Mordred jabs a spear through his father and Arthur pulls himself down the spear to his son so that he can stab him to death with his sword. What a way to go-go. That movie had so many creepy scenes. Where they Uh, throw the sword to the Lady of the Lake at the end and she catches it in midair, just her arm out of the water. Oh, man. Very, very cool stuff. That's so great. I hadn't remembered that scene, but I was just reading an article about that very movie. It's one of my all-time favorites from that time. It's the best King Arthur movie I think that there's out there. But, you know, that movie was shot with just such a shoestring budget. It's amazing, and it still holds up today. 
You know, it reminds me a lot of Dune because it's got like some acting and story problems, but visually it's just beautiful. It is. You know, and if it had been in a foreign language and you couldn't understand what was going on, you would have probably walked away from that movie and say, that is the best movie of all time. I've got to learn the language just so that I could understand what's going on. And then, of course, what you do, you say that was the worst, <laughs> worst thing I ever did. But, <laughs> wow. It, it, was, it was such a visual delight. Mm. Well, that bizarre vision confronting Professor Robinson combined with the creepy music must have really scared the kids at home, especially when the camera switches to an extreme close-up of the full-headed mask, because in addition to the mummy's desiccated eyes and lips, we can see through the slits. The mask itself is decorated on either side by a pair of cobras, and it's embossed with sinister arching eyebrows that combine to give an almost demonic presence of life which apparently it has. Mm -hmm. It's an outstanding prop and plot device as the story develops, because the mask becomes a visual avatar for the alien spirit. You'll also not be surprised to learn that this visually interesting prop would later be seen again, although somewhat altered, not in Lost in Space, but in Season 3 of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea in an episode titled Deadly Cloud. Check that one out. (laughs) I'm beginning to think Erwin Allen is the author of that famous line, what goes around comes around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I for one agree with the alien voice. John Robinson does have courage because instead of running and hiding like Dr. Smith would have done, he follows the voice's command and guardedly approaches the 11 stone steps leading up to the open crypt. Still firmly gripping the long spear, John halts on the first step when the voice speaks again. I have been waiting for you a long time. Who are you? Once, I was a great warrior and leader of my race, but that was many centuries ago. But what does he want with John? My body has long ago been used up. I want yours as a replacement. You have all the qualities which I need. The professor swivels his head around the room, but the mummy warns. There is no escape. But before John can decide for himself, the voice demonstrates his power level when the mask erupts. In a brief but violent flash of sparks and flames, which stuns the captive castaway, causing him to drop the spear and crumple down on the stairs as his knees buckle. As if it couldn't get any worse, abruptly, jets of menacing white gas begin streaming from the eyes of the mask. Losing his fight to remain conscious, the professor's head slowly slumps down on the cold stone steps. Then, in a beautifully executed practical effect shot, the camera switches to a side view of John passed out in the staircase, as the sinister gas mercilessly slinks down to John's level. The alien voice soothes. Sleep, John Robinson. Sleep. And just when the cloud of gas has fully enveloped the helpless professor's head, he adds, And while you sleep, I will take over your body. Mmm, 
Wow, that was a great scene. I just love the way that gas was like a slinky coming down the steps. <laughs> yeah, that creeping mist crawling down the stairs to John's face was very effective. And unlike today's CGI effects, they couldn't animate it or... Rather, they wouldn't, given Uncle Irwin's sharp pencil when tabulating the budget. So how did they get that fog to crawl down the floor rather than go everywhere? Well, the answer is in training. You can train fog like a dog to do certain tricks, but... No. Yes, honest, but it only obeys one command, and that command is temperature. If you run it through a metal tube surrounded by ice, it will come out cold and it won't mix with the warmer air. And instead, it will hang only a few inches above the floor. And it looks really cool because it is really cool, literally. Uh. We've seen this trick in countless horror movies and cemeteries and in crypts. But having it slowly cascade down a stairway like a snake crawling towards John's nostrils, that was sheer genius. And it really added to the sinister atmosphere. It really did. Wow, that makes sense. I, I've never seen that before done with stairs, and it was beautiful. It really was. It really was. That was great. Oh, cool. Very atmospheric. Well, sometime later, darkness has fallen, and we're outside the caved-in entrance to the catacombs. With their sleeves rolled up, the entire family, including the robot, are working by the light from the chariot's headlamps to clear tons of debris. As the men toil below with their shovels, the kids are clearing stones by hand from higher up on the massive pile of rubble. It looks like tough going, and they appear to have a long way to go before they break through the barrier. This is one of those scenes you don't notice the mismatch much because it happened between two other scenes. But if you go back and you look at the scene where the relatively smooth rock entrance drops down behind Smith and compare it to this scene where there's all these piles of random rocks, You won't see much similarity at all. Maybe Smith got lost and took them to the wrong cave entrance because this sure ain't it, pal. Yeah, it did have me scratching my head, and that entrance will (laughs) have me scratching my head all through the episode. So, uh... Well, Dr. Smith appears especially frazzled from his exertions and with a thud sits down on a boulder. Oh. Oh, enough! Enough! I've reached the end of my endurance. I'll take over your shovel if you want me to, Doctor. No, you won't, Penny. If the rest of us can keep going, so can you, Smith. You're a cold, cruel man, Major. Penny, do you want some of this? Mom offers Penny a cup of water, but she declines. No, thanks, Mom. Judy? So she walks over to the chariot to give Judy a drink. Uh, point of order, point of order, sir. You said cup of water. I sure hope you were. <laughs> I sh- I sure hope you weren't referring to a cup as in eight ounces because she was offering one of those itsy-bitsy tiny paper thimbles they offered during the Hungry Sea. Remember those? Don't go. Don't go. We're talking like one ounce max, you know. They're, they're, they're so miserly with their water around there. I'm surprised she doesn't use an eyedropper. It's incredible. It is. It is. It's a precious commodity on Preplanus. Well, Dr. Smith pulls himself to his feet and drags himself behind Maureen as the camera pans right to follow. Have some water. Dear lady, dear lady, nothing would give me greater joy than to free your husband. But we've been working for hours. The spirit is willing, but my flesh has grown weak. Well, perhaps you're right, Dr. Smith. We could probably all do with a few minutes rest. Judy glares in Dr. Smith's direction, announcing, I'm not tired, Mother. As she marches back over to the Mountain of Rocks, Smith and Maureen wordlessly follow her with weary eyes. 
Don takes a breather and breaks the tension by picking up a bundle of silver-colored explosive charges and suggests... We could save a lot of time if we could blast our way through into that cave. Excellent idea, Major. It would save hours of back-breaking labor. I advise against such a course. An explosive might cause further damage in the interior of the cave. I suppose he's right. Be still, you nondescript ninny. According to my computations, the chariot-like batteries only have a few more minutes of power. I suggest that everyone return to the spaceship and resume work in the morning. We can't do that. What about Dad? My sensors tell me that there is plenty of oxygen in the cave. Professor Robinson is in no danger from that source. Splendid. A good night's sleep for us all, and we can attack this barrier with renewed energy. For once, I agree with Smith, Marine. You can go back to the spaceship. I can't leave here. I want to stay, too. I can work in the dark. We'll get your father out safe and sound, Will. Don't worry. There's nothing more we can do now. Oh, please, Mom, let me stay, too. I can work just as long as Will can. Notice that everyone is willing to work into the night except Smith. All the women, all the children, just not the one person most responsible for causing the crisis. And I love the fact that Major West says for once he's willing to agree with Smith. We're going to hear that time and time again in this episode. You wait and see. Yep, it's true. Well, the thought of giving up has everyone wearing long faces, especially Maureen. But even if she hasn't given up on rescuing her husband, she finally has to give in to the logic of the circumstances. Don's right. We can't work in the dark. And I'm not going to let you two children stay up all night. But, Mom, Mother, are you sure he'll be all right? Yes, Judy. Come on, Judy. Mom's right, Will. All right. But I'm coming back first thing in the morning. You know, I was so impressed with how everyone played that dramatic little scene, Kurt, especially June Lockhart. When she finally had to resign herself to the inevitable, you could just see the pain on her face. And when she cut her eyes down as she was telling Judy that, yes, she was sure John would be okay, that was also very well done. So bravo, June Lockhart. This may be the last episode of the season, but the cast is certainly not mailing it in. It's amazing how sincere the acting by the cast, even when they only get little bit parts. June always seems to give 110%, and as far as I can recall, she never gets an episode that focuses on her character. I hope I'm wrong, but I never saw one where she's the center of the attention. Smith, Will, and the robot, they routinely get all the big scenes. Penny was the main character in The Magic Mirror and Mr. Nobody. Judy was the center in the, what, Monster Plant story and at least a couple others that are coming up. John is the focus of this episode and and I could think of at least one future episode where Major West shares the spotlight with Smith as the main characters on a prison planet. But June Lockhart, she never gets to fly solo despite being second billing. Yet she never seems very disappointed or bitter either. So, you know, I guess maybe that's just really good acting. Yep, the consummate professional. I I was really, though, impressed with that particular scene because it just was such a heartbreaking moment for her, and she really had to act like she was lying, hiding her lie. She was lying with her eyes, just with her eyes. Exactly, yeah. Well, next, we're back in the subterranean burial chamber focused on the open sarcophagus and the weird mummy inside. The disembodied voice commands... Awake, John Robinson. It is time you return to your family. 
Now that's the second time the voice addressed the professor by his real name, which was a little strange because John never introduced himself. So I was kind of wondering, how did the entity know that? Well, I don't know, but what I do know is that if he didn't demonstrate this unexplained omniscience in this scene, then I would have picked on him next for knowing everyone else's name later on. So either way, you can't satisfy the know-it-all sharpshooters at Alpha Control. We're always going to nitpick something. Uh, Yeah. Well, I guess it just underlines the fact that this thing obviously has been observing them somehow. Yeah, and it has some rather dramatic powers. It can move boulders. It could probably cause earthquakes. So, yeah, why can't it, you know, see things beyond where you would think it could see and maybe get inside someone's head and read their mind, you know, because that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, John does awaken, and although still groggy, the professor keeps his eyes fixed upward in the direction of the mask-wearing alien mummy. Slowly, he manages to stand up and then reminds the entity that the cave entrance is blocked. The cave entrance is blocked. I can't get out. I have removed the obstructions. The sound of rock scraping across the floor causes John to turn around and look back down the steps towards the chamber's entrance. And we can see that massive stone door is indeed swinging slowly open again. The camera lingers for a moment on Professor Robinson's dirt-smudged face as he takes it all in. There's something in his dead-eyed expression that indicates he's been changed. The alien voice confirms. Go, but remember, I am now part of you. John resists. No, I won't let you. Cutting back to the sinister mask, the presence lectures. There's nothing you can do. And every time you sleep, I will gain further control of your mind. You are not to remember anything that has happened here. Now go and take good care of our body. Oh, very creepy. Well, the camera jumps down to the cave floor. Looking up the steps, we see Professor Robinson's eyes close, and he sways unsteadily while behind him at the top of the stairs, the stone coffin slowly closes shut. Shaking off cobwebs, John now appears to be coming out of a trance. Rubbing his throbbing forehead, John looks at his watch. He must have been out for hours. And oh, by the way, where's Dr. Smith? Without waiting further for an answer, the professor staggers down the steps and heads out through the half-open chamber door to do as the malevolent voice had wished and rejoin his family. That's right. Leave and don't let the stone door hit you on the way out. Uh, (laughs) And you need to take care of our body. Don't forget that. That's the most important part. Very important. (laughs) Dissolving back to the campsite, darkness still shrouds the Jupiter II. Marine and Don are worriedly staring at us through the main viewport. As we can see in the background, Judy emerging from below deck via the electronic elevator. Sick with worry over the fate of their trapped loved one, no one can sleep. Dawn's still hours away, so there's nothing to do for the moment but wait. 
You know, that's the problem with going home to get a good night's sleep and then restart in the morning. No one can sleep except Smith, who sleeps like a log. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But ironically, no matter how well rested he is, he'll be the least help of all the next morning. <laughs> I might have to get back, don't you know? <laughs> well, despondently, Maureen tells the Major she thinks they should go back to the cave-in now. But before Don can counter with logic... Everyone's attention is diverted by the sound of footsteps. Judy cries, Dad! And the gloom is broken by the sudden, astonishing sight of the prodigal professor, wobbly but alive as he staggers into the ship. Grief gives way to joy as Marine rushes over to steady her husband with a heartfelt embrace and simple words of love. It's a short and sweet reunion, shorter than filmed due to the episode running long. According to Cushman's Lost in Space book, the cut footage had Major West asking some obvious questions that I had also, like how John managed to escape from the cave-in. Well, in the cut scene, the woozy professor doesn't provide a convincing answer, which seems to sow seeds of doubt in Don's mind. But that's left hanging, and the scene as shown ends with a relieved Marine brushing away all concerns. What matters is her husband is back, alive, and seemingly well. Or is he? Yeah, well, my wife would have taken one look at me and she'd say, Yeah, you're back. Where's the pistol? (laughs) (laughs) He had a hat. He had a hat. next morning, the happily reunited family is sitting at the picnic table finishing up breakfast, all except Dr. Smith, who's lurking far in the background by the edge of the hydroponic garden. Clutching a sad stump of a carrot, Smith wears a deprived expression as he looks on from afar at the feasting family, then moans softly, Oh dear, I'm weak with hunger. My stomach is a disaster area. Taking a bite of the unappetizing veggie, Smith quietly grouses. Salad. Nothing but dreary green salad. Must not be any little green onions there today. (laughs) Yeah, I thought the same thing. (laughs) Hoping for a little cybernetic sympathy, the doctor stomps over to join the robot, who's silently tending to the garden with his space watering can. His cosmic watering can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's silver, so it's got to be high-tech, Kirk. Come on. Eyes fixated on the meal he's missing, Smith crosses his arms like a spoiled child and grumbles. I'm literally famished. B9 stays mute as he waddles around the plant trays to continue irrigating the greenery. Tearing his food-craving eyes away from the food table, the doctor glances at the robot, griping again. Carrots for breakfast. Suitable for Bugs Bunny, perhaps, but hardly adequate fare for a gourmet like me. B-9 finally takes the bait, but instead of agreement, he asks a question. The others are eating breakfast. Why do you not join them? Because, my inquisitive friend, I do not wish Professor Robinson to question me about yesterday's unfortunate accident. Grimacing at the half-eaten carrot, the doctor opines. There are some things worse than hunger, I suppose. And then tosses it over his shoulder. Now, what was I saying? You were referring to... Yesterday's unfortunate accident. Dividing his attention between the robot and the activity across the way, Smith explains, Ah yes, despite the fact that I am completely without blame, 
Professor Robinson might just possibly bear some small resentment towards me. Giving B-9 his full attention, Smith self-righteously testifies. I had to let go of the rope, you know. Otherwise, I would have been trapped in the cave myself. In other words, you chickened out on him. Enraged, Smith lunges at his sassy sidekick and seethes. How dare you! B-9 continues. I'd like to report. But is shushed mid-sentence when Dr. Smith claps a palm over the robot's chest light as if covering a child's mouth. Checking to make sure that the fracas hasn't brought unwanted attention, Smith faces his accuser and weakly retorts. That is not true. But the robot replies, He who chickens and runs away will chicken out another day. Silence, you malicious moron. Just one more word out of you and I will... But before he can finish the idle threat, Will interrupts. Dr. Smith, Dad wants you. Uh, well, I, uh, tell him I'm busy working in the garden. I shall talk to him later. He said now. A moment of truth has arrived. Be still, you bubble-headed booby. Squirming but unable to avoid the inevitable, Smith says to the boy, uh, Very well. Lead on. With the act reaching a climax, Will proceeds Dr. Smith back across the compound. Upon reaching the picnic table, the boy takes a seat, but Smith remains standing. Before we go any further, Professor, I should like to state that I did everything in my power to help you yesterday. Graciously, John replies, Of course you did. Surprised, the doctor asks. Uh, Then you're not angry at me? Amused at the very idea, the professor assures with a nod, Certainly not. Have some breakfast. Why, thank you. As a matter of fact, I am a bit hungry today. But no sooner does Dr. Smith sit down than the pleasant mood is broken when John violently slams his hand down on the table. Glancing at the flummoxed physician with contempt, John hisses, Don't touch that food! But you just said that... You're not going to eat any food from this table today, and if you don't join us tomorrow on time for breakfast, you're not going to eat for another 24 hours, Dr. Smith. Is that understood? Marine, along with the rest of the family, is unnerved by her husband's unreasonable bipolar outburst. But John harshly tells her that it's none of her concern. Major West tries to break the extremely uncomfortable mood, nervously cajoling. Take it easy, John. Are you sure you're feeling all right? Professor Robinson bristles. I feel perfectly fine. Then jumps up from his seat and storms towards the airlock. He stops turns back to face the stunned group and announces, Just because I expect a little discipline, a little routine from that man, does not mean I am sick. Alarmed, Mrs. Robinson rushes over to her husband, who suddenly appears unsteady again and overcome with mental exhaustion. Leaning on Marine for support, he rubs his throbbing forehead. Almost as quickly as he blew up, John composes himself, apologizing. I'm... I'm sorry. Please forgive me, all of you. It's this headache. I just can't seem to get rid of it. Distressed by John's apparent PTSD-related behavior, Maureen says she thinks he should get some sleep. That's a good idea, but I'm not sure a nap is going to cure the professor's Excedrin headache. Remember, the entity said that every time he sleeps, he will take over more of his body. Yikes. In any event, John agrees that, yes, perhaps he better go lie down. Before he does, he addresses Dr. Smith. 
I hope you don't take what I said seriously, Dr. Smith. Oh, not at all, sir. We all have occasional outbursts of ill temper. Everyone around the table follows silently with their concerned eyes as Mrs. Robinson escorts her wobbly husband up the ramp and into the ship. She might also want to play it safe and serve the next meal without any knives. You know, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, really. It's time to check beneath this bed for a pulsating pot, just in case. (laughs) But, But seriously, it was neat to see how jovial John acted before Smith sat down, and then how furious he became the moment Smith's butt kissed that bench. It makes you wonder... Was the friendly John the real John who didn't blame Smith for any of yesterday's accident, but then he suddenly overcome by the alien during the outburst? Or was it the alien all along who was only acting friendly so he could yank the football back the moment Smith tried to kick it? We've seen John trick Smith like this before, pretending all is well and then blowing up on him. Right. Remember that bit he did back in Wish Upon a Star? We don't have a hydroponic garden anymore. Remember that? <laughs> yes, I remember it. But that got you moment didn't compare with the way John bites off Smith's head this time. Everyone looks suitably aghast. Oh, yeah. John has kind of pulled that trick before. But this mm-hmm. time, it just something about it just seemed, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, it was very mean-spirited. There's no doubt about that. And he didn't just say, you're missing this meal. He said, you're not going to eat at this table today. Right. Ugh. That's another great performance by Guy Williams. That's good stuff. It is. It's good stuff. Once the parents are out of earshot, Penny guardedly asks, Dad will be all right, won't he, Don? Sure, Penny. He'll be fit as a fiddle in the morning. However, Dr. Smith has a different diagnosis. Unfortunately, Major, I cannot agree with you. Professor Robinson is an extremely sick man. Shooting Judy a knowing look, Don holds his tongue, but Will asks, What do you think is wrong with him, Dr. Smith? The symptoms are unmistakable, Will. His responsibilities have become too much for him. The camera cuts around the table where everyone wears an uneasy expression as Dr. Smith holds court, adding with absolute authority. I've been expecting this for quite a while now. Judy quizzes, Expecting what, Dr. Smith? I regret to say that Professor Robinson is undergoing a complete mental breakdown. If anyone's flipping his lid around here, Smith, it's you. John Robinson happens to be the sanest man I've ever met. Indeed, Major. I will not argue the point with you. Just remember, there's a limit to what the mind can stand. Disgusted, Don retorts, For once I agree with you. There is a limit, and I've just reached it. Then he storms out of frame. (laughs) Yeah, there he goes again. Another one of those for the first time I agree with you things. (laughs) He's done this twice in this episode alone. I think if you added up all the first times he agrees with Smith, by the end of the third season, you probably would add enough for a fourth season. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he really hates to agree with Smith. We know that. (laughs) Yeah. Sometime later, we're inside the parents' cabin. Wearing a bathrobe, the professor seems far away as he sits alone on the edge of his bunk. Suddenly, there's a quiet knock. John asks, who is it? Sliding open the accordion door is a troubled-looking Will Robinson. Can I talk to you, Dad? Sure. Come in, son. I made a prize idiot out of myself, didn't I? No, you didn't, sir. Everyone understood. You're a good boy, Will. 
In many ways, you're a better son than I am a father. I think it's the other way around. Instead of being lost out here in space, you should be leading the life of a normal boy, playing with youngsters your own age, going to ball games, doing all the things a boy needs to do before growing up. I like what I'm doing better. You're saying that only because you don't know what you've missed. I should have insisted that you remain on Earth. And the girls, too. There's so much that they haven't experienced. So much. Dad? Before the young boy can object further, the exhausted professor gives in to his weariness and lays his head down, falling fast asleep. Will quietly switches off the lights and departs, closing the door behind him. That was a nice scene, but I was amused when the dad said, you're a better son than I am a father. And Will responds, I think it's the other way around. So Will's actually agreeing with John, but saying that the order is backward. Will is a better son than his dad is a father. <laughs> but that's just the English major in me. It was also pretty weird seeing the professor wearing a bathrobe while also wearing fully pleated slacks and boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are not the most comfortable PJs, I would say. Well, moments after being left alone, the mood changes along with the music from heartwarming to sinister. As the unconscious professor seems abruptly haunted by nightmares, tossing and turning as he moans, No. No. Then, the malevolent voice of the alien entity speaks again. Why do you fight me, John Robinson? I am already deep in your mind. I cannot be dislodged. Go away. Leave me alone. Somehow, I don't think that's going to happen, though. Instead, in a clever bit of stagecraft, director Richardson cuts to an empty black club chair sitting across the room, and the voice taunts. Why do you fight me, Professor Robinson? You expend your strength foolishly. Still speaking trance-like in his sleep, John resists. I'll never give in to you. You hear? Never! The empty chair responds angrily. Cease talking! Listen! I am going to leave this planet, or should I say, we are going to leave. To accomplish our purpose, we will need a spaceship. The Jupiter too has no power thrust. It lacks fuel. Small matters which can easily be taken care of with my help, of course. I will instruct you as to what must be done. You understand? The professor can only answer weakly. Yes. I understand. Having exerted power over his host, the irresistible force gloats. Good. Now sleep. When you wake, there will be much to do. Wow, Kurt, this spooky alien spirit has me worried. As if stealing Professor Robinson's body isn't enough, now he's threatening to take off, literally, with the Robinsons' only means of ever getting off this miserable planet. If he succeeds, you know what that means? Yeah, we'll be stuck on this planet for two more seasons. (laughs) 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 
Well, anyway, I can't wait to see where this is going, but we'll have to wait until after station identification to learn more. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, we're back outside near the edge of camp, where the robot is hoeing Rose in the small plot. Looking downcast, Will Robinson shuffles into the area. B-9 greets the brooding boy, who glumly takes a seat on a nearby boulder, and offers... If you have a problem, I'll be glad to help solve it for you. There's nothing you can do. You are concerned about your father, is that not so? Yeah. Professor Robinson is strong. Then, Dr. Smith strides up unnoticed behind the boys, and pauses to eavesdrop on their conversation. His recuperative powers are excellent. The camera cuts back to the snooping Smith, whose face is filled with antipathy for the robot's bland assurances to Will. There is no need to worry. I know. It's just that Dad's always so healthy. I'm seeing him in bed. The rest will do him good. From off screen, Dr. Budinsky <laughs> interrupts. I don't agree. Striding up next to the robot as if he'd only just arrived, Smith declares, Professor Robinson's problem is not physical, it's mental. Loafing in bed won't help him. <laughs> Smith should know he's the king of the loafers. Yeah. But it can't hurt him. Spare me your useless medical advice, Dr. Dunderhead. Well, Dad was all right before the cave-in, Dr. Smith. Ah, but was he? That is the important question. Who knows what deep-seated problems lay waiting in his subconscious like tigers ready to spring at the first sign of weakness. Golly, do you really think so? He displays all the symptoms of a classic case of a disturbed individual. B9's radar ears must be tuned to detect BS because hearing Dr. Smith's diagnosis causes them to shift suddenly. Baloney. Silence! Or I'll divide your computers and turn you into a split personality. Go on, Dr. Smith. Your father's problem must be rooted out and exposed to the fresh air of reason. Then a cure will be effected. I sure wish there was something we could do. There is. With my extensive practice in the field of psychiatry, I could easily restore your father to perfect mental health. Well, I don't know, Dr. Smith. If you're not really qualified... Now, what do you suppose the title doctor before my name implies? Of course I'm qualified. However, if you prefer to have your father suffer... Oh, I'm sorry if I insulted you, Dr. Smith. If you can help Dad, I'm all for it. Very well. I shall undertake to start working on my patient at the earliest opportunity. May I speak? You have my permission. In my opinion, it is not Professor Robinson who needs psychiatric treatment. It is his doctor. Just you wait, you deplorable dummy. <laughs> The camera zooms in on Smith's grimacing face as B-9 prances out of the frame. Next, we're back outside the Jupiter 2. Maureen and Judy are busy organizing things for dinner, while Major West is seated at the picnic table working on some technical manuals. Appearing refreshed and fit as a fiddle, Professor Robinson, carrying a roll of tech specs, marches out through the open hatch and pauses at the top of the ramp. ladies are all smiles at seeing him awake. Maureen meets him on the ramp and gently asks, How's the headache? 
He replies, gone and forgotten. He feels fine now, but there's something in his cold tone that instantly sent chills up my spine. Mrs. Robinson tenderly says she's happy because he really had her worried. Boring holes into her with his eyes, John harshly replies, I said I was fine. Now let's drop the subject. He might feel fine, but suddenly no one else does. Because nap or no nap, once again, Dr. Robinson has turned into Mr. Hyde. Nervously laughing, Maureen tries to cover the sudden rise in tension with a smile, saying, Certainly, dear. But glancing back at the table, there's no hiding that Judy is obviously disturbed. While Don turns back to his book, avoiding eye contact with the strangely volatile professor. The knives, Maureen. Remove the knives. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Yep, yep. Turning his cold eyes to the others, John marches down the ramp. But when Judy says, I hope you're real hungry, we're going to have a wonderful dinner. Instead of a direct answer, he takes his seat at the head of the table, brusquely sweeps away the tableware and Don's manual out of the way, then announces, We can discuss food later. Right now I have something more important to discuss. The close-up of Maureen's troubled face, combined with the chilling music, sets the mood. Everyone's on edge. Sharply cutting his eyes around the table to gauge their reactions, the perturbed professor reveals, We're getting the Jupiter II back into space. Unrolling the blueprints, John declares, I've devised a machine to make fuel. It can synthesize all the deuteronium we need. Studying the technical drawings, Major West is impressed and blurts out, Fantastic! Which causes a quick, triumphant smile to break across John's face. But there's no sign of friendliness in the expression at all. The professor jabs, But it will work. Don never said it wouldn't. But where did John get this information? It's years ahead of anything we know. Playing I've Got a Secret, John says, What difference does it make? Just so we can get off this planet. In a slightly challenging tone, Don says he couldn't be happier. He's just curious why the professor never told him about this method of manufacturing fuel before. The professor's face darkens. Since when is it necessary that I discuss everything with you, Major West? Now Don looks troubled, but bites his tongue. The professor leans in and points his finger at Don. You seem to forget who's in command here. It is I who give the orders. Your job is to obey them. Reacting to John's uncharacteristic behavior coolly, Major West glances at the ladies and replies mildly, Sure, John, you're running the show. Whatever you say, that's fine with me. (laughs) I've never seen Don tuck his kahunas between his legs like that before. (laughs) It's pretty uncomfortable seeing everyone tiptoeing around John on eggshells, but this is probably a much more realistic version of what life for a maroon space family would really be like. Instead of the Brady Bunch in space, it would be more like a celebrity version of Survivor starring John McEnroe. Right. <laughs> We're all just waiting to see who gets yelled at, beaten up, and kicked out of the colony first. After Smith, that is, because we all know he would be first. <laughs> yeah, nerves would be very frayed in real life. I'm quite sure of that. I mean, just think about it. You know, they're all just stuck there, and there's no hope, and they're running short. Of, yeah, the tempers would flare. That's true. Well, glaring at the ladies for any sign of rebellion, the professor pauses before issuing more orders to his subordinates. Now, from now on, things are going to be different around this camp. I've worked out a flight schedule. It calls for our leaving this planet in one week. 
Now, in order to attain that goal, we're going to have to work day and night. Marine gently demurs. Why the sudden rush? Another day or two won't make any difference. Shooting daggers with his eyes, John sneers back at his wife. Because I want it that way, Maureen. Rising from his chair, the possessed professor towers above Mrs. Robinson, who appears to be wilting under his dead-eyed stare. When he asks in a threatening tone, Any objections, Maureen? All she can manage to reply is, No, John. Turning his menacing gaze to the others, he taunts, Has anyone else any comment? Maintaining a normal tone, the Major asks, When do they start manufacturing fuel? Snatching his blueprints from the table, he answers, Right after dinner. Turning back to the ship, Big Bad John halts at the top of the ramp, spins around and orders, Have someone bring me my dinner. I'll be eating in the lab tonight. Then disappears inside the spaceship. That was a really, really uncomfortable scene to watch. I mean, it was a real tour de force of acting for Guy Williams. I squirm in my seat every time I watch that part because he was channeling the worst kind of abusive husband or father you've ever read about. When he jumped up in that shot with just the two of them at the end, standing inches from Marine, he never seemed more imposing and she never looked weaker. I thought, my God, is he going to slap her or worse? In fact, there were several points where Guy Williams gave off this vibe that he was really restraining himself from getting, you know, physically violent. In many ways, I think he's a better performer when acting against type, you know, not playing the hero. What are your thoughts about that scene and uh, specifically Guy Williams acting? What are my thoughts? Yes, what are your thoughts? Since when do I have to tell you my innermost thoughts? All you ever do is sit there and sanctimoniously blather on about who says what or does this or does that. While I have to come up with all the clever lines. Wife or two buttons and an old shoestring I... Uh, I'm sorry, it's this headache. I just can't seem to shake it. No, no, seriously, I'm enjoying this bipolar John. He really does act like he's ready to just go off on the slightest infraction and just go totally postal on them. So maybe it's a good thing he didn't find that laser pistol after all. <laughs> Did you see that 1999 movie, The Mystery Men? It was a very funny superhero spoof with wonderful characters. No, I don't think I saw that one. Oh, it's great. Uh, William Macy played the shoveler. His power was that he used a shovel to combat crime. And Paul Rubens, alias Pee Wee Herman, was the spleen. He would use <laughs> flatulence to knock out the bad guys. But my favorite <laughs> one was Ben Stiller's character, Mr. Furious. His claim to fame was an explosive temper. It would scare crooks straight. They would piss him off, and he would start to simmer and then boil, and he'd go, temperature rising, heart rate increasing, blood pressure reaching critical. Now, now, calm down, Furious. They're going to surrender. Stay cool. But Professor Robinson is reminding me of that character so much, but with an explosive suicide vest tightly wrapped around and filled with nails. It's really something to behold. Yeah, and I missed that one. I'll have to check that one out. But yeah, that's probably in the dollar movie bin at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, it didn't do so well, but it was a scream. It really was. It had no publicity. In fact, I walked into that movie having no idea what it was about and walked away totally floored. I said, that's the best movie I've seen all year. Very cool. Well, next, many hours have passed, and we're inside the Jupiter 2 as Dr. Smith... Major West, Judy, and Marine stagger into the ship, looking frazzled and worn out. 
Smith and Marine plopped their weary bones down into the groovy space chairs in the center of the upper deck. Judy collapses on the spaceship's main control console by the viewport as Don leans against a nearby bulkhead for support. Mrs. Robinson didn't know it was so late, well after 2 a.m., but Smith did. Indeed, every muscle in his body knows it. Your husband, madam, has turned into a tyrant. Which was a pretty clever double entendre because Canto was and literally is a tyrant. But the way it was delivered was so completely natural that it made that that little insight easy to miss. Yes, and I completely missed it, but you're right. It's literally the truth, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Judy pipes in. Ah, At least he let Will and Penny go to bed at their normal time. Yeah, but he wasn't too happy about it. He sure is in a rush to get that fuel machine built. But it cannot be done in one night. Unfortunately, he doesn't seem to realize that. With everyone wearing long faces, Maureen voices her real concern. Have any of you noticed John's eyes? They seem to look right through you. Indeed, I have noticed. I do believe there is cause for alarm. One thing that bothers me is you never know what to expect. One moment he seems perfectly all right, and the next, pow, he's like someone you've never met before. Even I can't talk to him. He just walks away. I know. I grabbed him by the arm, and he gets so angry, he almost hit me. We're obviously dealing with a very disturbed man, Major. He cannot be reached by the usual methods of reasoning. You know, Dr. Smith, I never thought I'd hear myself saying this, but I'm even willing to take a suggestion from you. Yeah, there he goes again, agreeing with Smith for the first time. Only it's the third time of this episode. We should make a drinking game out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Glaring back at the Major, Smith declares, And high time, too. Let me handle the professor. Possibly you're unaware that I'm completely familiar with the latest techniques in the field of psychiatry. As a doctor or a patient? Spare me your insulting barbs, Major, or I shall withdraw my offer of help. Dr. Smith, Don was only joking. I'm sure we'd all be most grateful for any help you could give us. For the sake of the children and you, madam, I shall take the case. Possibly Professor Robinson is still awake. I might as well start the treatment immediately. Good luck, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Judy. I shall do the best I can. Prancing over to the electronic elevator, Smith boards it, spins around, raises a finger for effect, and grandly swears, Dr. Zachary Smith, the angel of mercy, rises to the occasion. Instead of ascending to Valhalla, Smith, ironically, descends to the lower deck. And realizing the contradiction, he self-consciously drops the index finger with a look of obvious chagrin. It's a comical end to the scene, but for once... No one else on the ship looks at all amused. Well, I can't believe any of the adults actually think Smith is going to improve their situation. But maybe they're so desperate they're, they're willing to try anything. Given his past performance, though, I think the best that we can expect is that he's going to pull out the pin on Professor Robinson's anger grenade. I'd lay money on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> As the act nears a climax, we're down on the lower deck. Professor Robinson is in his quarters, reclined on a space-age patio chase lounge as he feverishly works on calculations, using an old-fashioned clipboard and pencil. The accordion door to the cabin is half open, so when Dr. Smith approaches and pauses in the doorway, we can clearly see him. But for some reason, Professor Robinson doesn't react in the slightest. Instead, he continues scribbling away, engrossed with his important paperwork. Smith raps on the doorframe asking, May I come in? But continues to get the brush off. 
Unfazed by the slight, Dr. Smith takes the silence as a yes, and with a self-assured grin, slides the door closed behind him and helps himself to a seat across from Professor Robinson. Well, burning the midnight oil, I see. (laughs) Eyes focused squarely on his clipboard, the professor finally utters an irritated query. What do you want? I'm busy. Cutting back and forth between shots of the two men, it's a sharp study in contrasts. The jocular angel of mercy, Dr. Smith, and the obsessive demon-possessed professor. I just thought we'd have a, a nice little chat. You know, quite often a quiet talk with a friend has great therapeutic value. Still glued to his work, John mutters, I have no friends. Oh, but you have, and I am one of them. Why don't you just put down your work and relax? Surprisingly, John refrains from exploding. Instead, he wordlessly drops the clipboard in his lap, exhales deeply, then crosses his arms across his chest as he leans back in his chair, staring at the ceiling. At last, Dr. Sigmund Freud Smith has his patient right where every psychoanalyst wants. There. Excellent. Can't you just feel the tensions and frustrations of a busy day melting away? All I feel is boredom. Possibly you don't realize, but you haven't been yourself lately. Your attitude has been overbearing, hostile, quite unpleasant. Obviously, you're having a little, shall we say, mental trouble. Now, why don't you tell the doctor all about it? Slowly raising his head to face the doctor, John speaks. Dr. Smith? Yes? You're a fool. I beg your pardon? I said you're a fool. Springing to his feet in terror and confusion, Dr. Smith scrambles towards the cabin door and freezes. What? Glancing down at the reclined professor, then back up at the ceiling, it's obvious to Smith that the voice was not John's. Who said that? The alien spirit replies, I did, Dr. Smith. Gripped with fear, Smith manages to stutter. Who are you? The voice answers, I will tell you. The enchanted professor then reveals, My name is Kanto. I'm a great leader and warrior from the planet Questy. Tag-teaming, the entity adds, Is there anything else you would like to know, Dr. Smith? No, no, I, I, I'm perfectly satisfied. In a desperate move, Dr. Smith reaches for the door latch, but before he can escape, Professor Robinson orders in a cruel deadpan tone. Stay where you are. No one said you could leave. Frozen in horror with his back to the cabin door, Smith listens intently as the booming alien voice orders. You are not to mention this to anyone. Do you understand? Uh, Oh, yes. Yes, sir. It would be wise to remember what I have said. If you do not... Professor Robinson finishes Kanto's menacing threat as if in a trance. I will be forced to destroy you. Melting down, Smith shrieks. Tears open the sliding door and races out of John's cabin. It's a horrifying prospect for sure, and based on the cold expression on John's face and the tone of his voice, this seems like no idle threat. But I'm struck at the contrast between the entity's demeanor and the way the canto-possessed John has been acting up until this scene, with his wild mood swings and violent outbursts. 
he comes across as much different from the determined, self-assured tone of Kanto's disembodied voice. Did that stand out to you? And if so, do you have any ideas for the difference, Kurt? Well, I, I thought the scene played well until you sit back and actually think about it. What did Kanto hope to gain by revealing his presence? He could have just as easily beaten up and thrown Smith out without saying who or what he really was and not have to worry about Smith telling anyone anything. A black eye and a bloody nose would have served as a good motivators for the rest of the crew. It was still a creepy scene, even though we all knew Smith was going to fail, but the suspense was in waiting for the fireworks, and in that, <laughs> it did not disappoint. No, it didn't. But I think I agree with you. It did seem odd that he revealed himself to Smith. And it also set up some more questions in my mind later, since he obviously knows that there's that voice associated with the weird acting John. So I'm not sure about that whole thing. But And it always plays into our ongoing aggravation and frustration with Smith that he knows something that could save the entire crew, but he won't say anything. He's just too cowardly to do it. He's done that before, and here he goes again. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. Well, in any event, this tale has taken a very serious turn for the worst. But we'll have to wait until after the commercial to find out if there are more turns to come. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Excedrin Headache Number 110, The Night Owl. Rhoda, please go to sleep, oh, honey. I'm not What disturbed. have you got in bed with you? It's a Boeing 707. It just came in down at Shackler's oh, store. Oh, get it out of bed. Rhoda, There's glue all over Rhoda, i got to use my hands. Last night it was the toaster. Crumbs all over the bed. Look at that scale. Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> oh, Elliot, for... <laughs> get that airplane out of bed. Rhoda, please go to sleep. Ow! I... The propeller. Oh, I'm sorry. Get me that green bottle. Excedrin? I have an Excedrin headache. Life is full of Excedrin headaches. That's why you want Excedrin strength. Tablet for tablet, 50% stronger than aspirin for relief of headache pain. For Excedrin headaches, get Excedrin relief. When we return from the break to start Act 3, it's next morning. We're back outside some distance from the Jupiter 2 campsite. Dr. Smith, racked with worry, is seated on a rock with a robot silently standing guard next to him. Oh dear, what am I going to do? If I tell the others what's happening, the alien will destroy me. And if I don't... Did you address me, Dr. Smith? No, though I was talking to myself. A most disturbing habit. It tells me you have a problem. Would you like to discuss it with me? A fat lot of good you could do. You are mistaken. I already know a great deal. Just then... Young Will enters the area, at first unnoticed, but when Dr. Smith sees the boy, he tries to muzzle the blabbermouthed booby. I too know what is wrong with Professor Robinson. Quiet! I don't want to hear another word out of you. Let him talk, Dr. Smith. If he knows what's wrong with Dad, maybe we can find a cure. There's nothing to cure. Your father's condition was only temporary. He's well on the way to recovery. That is not true. The professor has grown worse. One more word out of you and I'll remove your power back. Let him talk, Dr. Smith. I want to hear what he has to say. Well, I do not. I refuse to get involved. Then he storms out of the frame, leaving Will and the robot to discuss the professor's condition alone. Back at the Jupiter campsite, Don is making the final adjustments at a strange-looking contraption that we learn is the new fuel synthesizer Professor Robinson designed under Kanto's influence. It's a strange amalgam of parts recycled from previous episodes 
including the Volta Blade generator and the large cosmic energy meter we've seen in several episodes. As all three Robinson women observe, Major West announces, We're almost finished. Tomorrow we should be able to start manufacturing fuel. Oh, Don. You know, I always thought that I would be overjoyed at the thought of leaving this planet, but I'd be willing to stay forever if it would help John return to normal. Dr. Smith said Dad is getting better, but I haven't noticed any improvement. Neither have I. If anything, he's worse. Mom? The robot has something to tell us. Everyone's all ears as the two boys shuffle into camp. Mom asks, What is it? I have computed Professor Robinson's condition and have arrived at certain conclusions. He is not mentally or physically ill. He isn't? Well, then what's wrong with him? He is possessed. Possessed by an alien spirit. But how? Why? My source of information is limited. You're holding back something. I order you to tell us. Very well. But it will distress you. We want to hear it. The alien spirit has not yet gained full control of Professor Robinson. But time grows short. Unless some remedy is found, he will be completely taken over and lost forever. I am sorry. Don, what are we going to do? I wish I knew. It's a bitter pill to swallow. Our castaways are concerned and confused. But strangely, no one seems to balk at the concept of a spirit possession. That's something I'd expect of Dr. Smith, or maybe Penny would accept. Remember Uncle Thaddeus and the Ouija board? But the others? Hmm... Well, maybe John's behavior has been so unsettling that they're ready to accept anything that would otherwise be laughable to them. Or maybe they find it harder to believe that the man they love so much has become a total a-hole, you know, all on his own. At least this new theory offers another possible explanation. And to be fair, they've already been acclimated to other supernatural alien powers, you know, like that Uncle Thaddeus you mentioned and, of course, Mr. Nobody. Yeah, that's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Abruptly, the camera jumps to the exterior of the Jupiter 2. The bedeviled professor marches up and suspiciously peers out of the viewport. Cutting inside the ship, we're looking over John's shoulder through the glass at the rest of the castaways, who are clustered around the robot at the edge of camp and unaware that he's surveilling them. The mood grows dark, just like the interior of the ship, which unusually seems to be completely without lighting. Even the instruments on the main control panel are absent their ubiquitous little blinking lights. It grows darker still when the alien voice speaks. The mechanical man has told them what is happening. That could be very unfortunate. John spins around towards the camera, which closes in on him. With a subtle shadow falling across his face and a far-off look in his eyes, he replies to the entity. There's nothing they can do to stop us now. Perhaps. Still, they could be a hindrance. And we must remove them. <laughs> we are beginning to think more and more alike. The scene ends with Professor Robinson staring off into space as he contemplates the next stage of Kanto's diabolical agenda. And I have to say, I love Gregory Morton's voice. It is very good for this evil alien character. Every time he speaks, I keep picturing that scary mask, even when it's not there. 
Now, what I find so scary about this scene is that it seems to indicate that the inner John no longer cares about his family. He's on Team Canto now, and he's willing to throw his own children under the bus. I like the way they orchestrated the talking to himself bit, you know, with the disembodied voice echoing off screen while John responds to it. Not since the first Spider-Man movie where Daniel Defoe pleads with his alter ego, the Green Goblin, in the mirror, have I enjoyed such dramatic schizoid debate. It was great stuff. I just thought that was shot so well, too, with the darkness inside the ship. That was unusual, and the shadows and everything. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very cool. Later that night, we're back outside the Jupiter 2. Will Robinson silently pokes his head out of the open airlock hatch and pauses warily to observe something. By the way, do they ever close that hatch at night? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then we're shown what has the boy's attention the possessed professor heading purposely out of the campsite. After a moment, flashlight in hand, our young castaway stealthily follows after his father, but at a safe distance, and the camera pans along as Will creeps by the hydroponic garden planters. Sensing he's being followed, the professor suddenly halts at the edge of camp. After a long second, he abruptly swings around towards the ship, causing Will to duck for cover behind a large rock formation just a few yards away. John scans the area with suspicious eyes. Clearly something's amiss, but seeing no one, he turns back, then marches away, disappearing behind the ever-present rock formations. I always enjoy those cinematic jump scares, you know, those sudden cutaway shots to the (laughs) screeching cat or when an off-screen hand grabs someone's shoulder and jolts the audience. Mm -hmm. When John whips around like that, it does make the viewer gasp. And yet, we've already established that Kanto has the ability to see, hear, and control things beyond his immediate vicinity. He moved those boulders from the front of the cave when he was deep down in the pit, and he sensed that the robot had revealed his presence to the Robinsons while he was still within the ship and they were outside. So, not to know he's being followed that closely by Will is a bit of a hard sell, but, you know, I still liked it and it is effective. Oh, I loved it, yeah. But you're right, it does make you wonder. (laughs) How come Kanto doesn't know they're being followed? (laughs) Well, with the coast clear, Will slinks out from undercover, then tiptoes over to the camp perimeter, pausing long enough just to make double sure he's not been seen. The boy then scampers out of the area in pursuit of his perfidious parent. Perfidious. Oh, I'm sensing a frustrated English major. <laughs> and an overworking thesaurus. <laughs> yes, thesaurus.com is my friend. <laughs> you know, it's hard to come up with all these alliteratives, but <laughs> I think they're... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dissolving to the next scene, the suspenseful mood continues as Professor Robinson slowly approaches the entrance of the cave and once again freezes for a moment taking another leery look around before vanishing into the eerie blackness beyond the opening. As you mentioned before, Kurt, that opening looks a lot different than the last time we saw it when it was covered by an avalanche of rocks and debris. Hmm. In fact, there's no sign there was ever any planet quake at all now. It's very curious and worrying. Yes, my sedimentary sentiments exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, somehow young Will has managed to track Dad to the cave without being detected, 
And after a suitable delay, our junior space pioneer cautiously follows John into the cavern. Once inside, we're shown the boy carefully stepping around the stalagmites jutting up from the sandy ground and occasionally crouching behind more rocks to avoid being spotted by his target. Then we jump cut deeper into the subterranean area as wheel snakes by the giant stone door at the entrance to the creepy alien burial chamber. The atmosphere is amplified by the creepy music, but that jump cut brought attention, at least to me, that the director was having to gloss over a minor issue with the geography of that cave. Remember, John originally found the alien chamber after he fell helplessly to the lower level of the caverns in the teaser. We're never shown an alternate way from the upper level of the cave entrance to the lower level where Kanto's crypt is, which leaves you wondering, how does that work? It's not really a huge discontinuity, but because it'll be repeated again, it's at least worth mentioning. As I said before, this episode did run long, so if they had filmed more action showing that transition from the upper to the lower level, it would have been an easy cut. And honestly, that kind of thing is usually filler anyway. I just happen to notice it because it's, you know, like the second or third time they go from the upper level to the lower level. Well, I I love catching those little force field factors and continuity errors. But honestly, what's amazing is how 99% of the viewers never notice that stuff, including you and me, except for the fact that we watch it more than once, back to back. Exactly. Yeah. Looking around apprehensively at the strange surroundings inside the burial chamber, the camera tracks with our junior Tomb Raider, who slowly steps deeper inside to explore. Will shines his flashlight around the strangely well-lit room. There's no sign of the professor, but when the beam catches sight of a large ceremonial alien statue of some sort of squatted being, it gives the boy a healthy little jump scare. A close-up of that weird statue's bug-eyed face made me think, yeah, if I were 11 years old, I'd have jumped too. But realizing the statue's no threat, the boy composes himself and breaks the ghostly silence, shouting, Dad? Where are you? Looking up at the closed sarcophagus at the top of the stone steps, John's nowhere to be seen. Will has no idea what's behind that ornate door. But with the tension building, we watch helplessly from above as the boy scales those 11 steps to find out. Reaching the temple-like landing at the top, Will fearlessly creeps closer to the upright coffin. The music builds to a climax as he grasps the heavy stone lid and tries to pry it open. But before he can get a glimpse of what lies behind the stubborn door, the suspense is suddenly interrupted by a familiar hand clasping Will's shoulder. Dad, golly, did you give me a scare? Startled, the boy turns around and the camera pulls back to reveal the hand's owner. There you go, the classic jump scare. If you had any doubt about this being a horror episode, the healthy number of those scenes is proof enough of it. Oh, and did you notice how Will was able to open that stone door with just one hand? John couldn't do it with two. So this kid is really a chip off the old block with that kind of strength at age 10 or 11 and just one arm. It's pretty good. Yes, he must have eaten his Wheaties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, instead of comforting his shaken son... 
The close-up of John's face shows him filled with venomous suspicion. What are you doing here? Spying on me? Answer me. You're spying. No, sir. I mean, yes, sir. I mean, I didn't mean any harm. Really, I didn't, sir. Does anyone else know about this? Will merely shakes his head no. Narrowing his eyes, the fiendish father threatens in a gravelly voice. If you're lying... No, sir, it's the truth. Really, Dad? All right. I believe you. Now go back where you belong. And if you say anything about this to anyone, I'll punish you. Do you understand? Now go. Spooked by his father's bizarre behavior, Will gives a wounded, Yes, sir. Then quickly scampers down the stairs, watched by Professor Robinson's cold eyes as he slips out through the half-closed stone doorway. With the little intruder gone, John Robinson stands trance-like on the landing, facing away from the sarcophagus behind him. Then the casket's ornate door slowly swings open, revealing the sinister mask-wearing Crypt Keeper yet again. brought you back to this tomb for a reason, John Robinson. It is time for me to take over completely. The professor's face is completely expressionless as he answers vacantly. Yes, I know. Another great performance by Guy Williams. He really sold me that he was capable of anything, Kurt, even possibly violence against his own son. But just wait, he's not done, Kurt. The worst is yet to come. Yeah, well, if I go anywhere, I'll be right back with child welfare services. <laughs> Next, back at the Jupiter 2, the morning calm is drowned out by the sounds of high-voltage electricity. And we're focused on a familiar prop that usually precedes an accidental blast of pyrotechnics. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, it's the good old cosmic radiation gauge. The camera pulls out to reveal it's centered and an assortment of other high-tech equipment buzzing away at something. Standing next to the airlock ramp, Don and Judy are attending to the contraption, which we infer is John's fuel synthesizer because the Major states that they're right on schedule. Just then, Marine exits the ship and asks worriedly if either of them has seen John. Don says, come to think of it, he hasn't. Judy says, isn't he in the lab? No, says Mom, and he's not anywhere else in the spaceship. She's looked everywhere. Dad just wouldn't have run off, says Judy. Don grimly tells Marine... I think I know where we can find him. The place where all this started. That cave. The three silently exchanged disturbed looks of realization. Well, I guess we're going back to that cave, Kurt. But where's Will? Shouldn't he have maybe mentioned that terrible tomb? And how insane his freaky father was acting? That would have been a nice thing to know before they leave. (laughs) Yeah. If he wants his dad to go completely crack a toe on him, (laughs) he ain't no dummy. Mum's the word for mummy. Sheesh. (laughs) 
Sure enough, with the act nearing a close, we dissolve to the next scene, and we're following Don and the Robinson ladies as they trek along the sandy path back to the pristine entrance of that cave. We can see that Don is packing heat, and Judy has a flashlight, which is also good thinking. But just like Will, nobody seems surprised about all the tons of rubble that's been miraculously cleared and hauled away from the opening. Hey, well, you know, not to contradict our earlier observations, but Canto did tell John that all the obstructions had been removed so he could leave the cave. And you know how obsessively clean and tidy those compulsive dictators can be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps they're too worried about John to notice because as they pause before entering, Major West states... I'll go in first and look around. Hand me the flashlight. Which Judy does, but before he takes a step, Mrs. Robinson and Judy both declare firmly, they're going with. Don doesn't think it's a good idea. There's no telling what they may find in there, but Mama R puts her foot down. Outvoted. Don relents. All right. Then the threesome boldly disappear into the dark interior of the cave. Yeah, what the heck? If he tucked in his kahunas for Canto, he might as well cave in for the women, too. Especially since he's literally at the cave. Uh, He's turned into a real beta male, that Major West. Hmm. I'll say. We jump cut again down to the lower level of the cavern. This time, we're just outside the alien tomb. Don hesitates briefly, then plunges cautiously through the half-open stone doorway, followed by Maureen and Judy. Entering the expansive chamber, all three are struck by the otherworldly archaeological atmosphere as they pause at the foot of the stone staircase. But before they can digest the meaning of all this, we see and hear the massive stone door behind our three castaways start to slide closed. Stunned, Judy stands frozen in place, but Don and Marine race back to the doorway. But it's too late. Heartlessly, it slams shut before they can stop it. Now they're trapped with no way out, and they don't get much time to reflect on their dire circumstances because suddenly, the booming voice of the alien spirit Canto echoes through the cavernous crypt. What is it you want here? All three castaways turn their heads up towards the top of the stone steps, where we see a violent burst of exploding flash powder. When the smoke clears, standing in front of the alien sarcophagus, we see Professor Robinson towering above them in a defiant pose. But instead of wearing his familiar velour space fatigues, He's dressed from head to toe in villainous black and holding a gleaming gladiator sword in his silver-gloved hands. Judy asks what we're all thinking. Dad, where did you get those clothes? Yeah, that's so typical of Judy. She's always focused on different hairstyles or different clothes. Never mind the demon possession. (laughs) But you know, that was an interesting scene because that exploding flash powder, you can see that John is standing there, you know, as it goes off because... You know, when they were riding it, they were probably thinking, it's going to be a big explosion of, of a cloud concealing them. 
But it starts off at the bottom and it has to explode up, and that takes a fraction of a second. So you see, you know, John Robinson standing there. If they wanted that to work cinematically, they had to shoot it twice. They should have shot, mm-hmm. should have shot it without John standing there, the flash powder going off, and then shoot it again with John behind the flash powder as it goes off, and then splice it. But that would have required two doses of flash powder and, and Irwin Allen probably thought I'm not going to spend the next 25 cents <laughs> or either that or they just forgot but it was still pretty funny yeah it is funny but you do catch a glimpse of him right before that explosion goes off well so as it's, it's going of, off it's as it's yeah. going off because it's at his feet and it takes just a fraction of a second for that smoke to go all the way up and conceal him so they should have shot it twice yeah but they didn't but I wasn't really quite sure what the purpose of that was, to have him even appear suddenly. Why not just have him appear? I guess it was just for dramatic effect to have this explosion. Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. Well, Marine rushes past her daughter to the foot of the staircase. Oh, John, I'm so glad we found you. Commanding the high ground, the black-clad man explains to Marine in her husband's voice that they are all mistaken. He is not John Robinson. Don inches closer to the steps and tries to calmly talk their spellbound leader down off the ledge so that they can all return to the Jupiter 2. The camera cuts back to the landing at the top of the steps, and we get a closer look at the strangely garbed professor. His black outfit is worthy of a Buck Rogers bad guy, and it comes complete with a golden Egyptian scarab necklace, coiled serpent armlet around his right bicep, and a jeweled metal cuff on his left wrist. And it's all topped off with a wide gold brocade belt wrapped high on the waist of his form-fitting tunic. The imposing sight of this alien clothing is matched by the expression of cold determination on John's face. You know, Lane, if ever you retire from flying, you can always get a job as one of those style reporters at the Hollywood Red Carpet Awards ceremonies. <laughs> Oh, like Mr. Uh, oh God, what was Mr. Blackwell <laughs> and Joan Rivers? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. I'm just trying to paint a picture here, folks. Yeah. That's all. That's all. Well, bounding a couple of steps downhill, John brandishes his sword and warns, "Stay where you are." Now, is that any way to treat an old friend? The professor's tone suggests they're strangers, or worse, enemies. John takes several more steps down and threatens. I warn you, do not take another step closer. Come on, buddy, you don't need that. Stay back! Backing away from the staircase, the Major realizes that something terrible has happened to his friend and somberly whispers as much to Marine. Just then... Appearing unsteady and clutching his forehead, John seems overcome with another throbbing headache. Don takes advantage of the pause to softly tell the wide-eyed Mrs. Robinson that they've got to get that weapon away from him, suggesting that perhaps she'll have better luck with her disturbed husband. Major West cautions, be very careful. (laughs) Well, Marine doesn't waver. Approaching the foot of the stairs, she climbs one step and soothes. John, you remember Major West. You've known each other for years. Marine's tranquilizing tone made me think the one thing they forgot to bring was a straitjacket, but it seems to have some effect. 
because Professor Robinson looks up and responds slowly. Major West? Seeing a glimmer of her old father return, Judy begs, Dad, please, you've got to remember. John lowers his sword and takes a couple of more unsteady steps down and offers a hand to his wife. Maureen presses on. And you remember Penny and Will and Dr. Smith? John appears confused, as if he'd just been roused from a deep sleep. Okay, now you were doing great, Maureen, helping soothe this headache and bringing back fond family memories, but did you have to mention Dr. Smith? (laughs) That might just set him off again. (laughs) Uh, I did like the fact, though, that she said that you've known Major West for years. I wasn't aware of that. No. I mean, according to what we've seen, they never knew each other until this flight first started, and they haven't even been there a whole year. So this alludes to a previous history that we were unfamiliar with at this point. I didn't know that history either, so that's pretty cool. Hmm. Well, then John turns his gaze towards his wife's pleading eyes. She says, Oh, try, try to remember. Placing a gloved hand on her cheek, John slowly repeats, Maureen. Relieved, Mrs. Robinson clasps her hands around his. The spell seems to have been broken, and now the professor appears to recognize the others because he turns his wandering eye to the other Robinson girl in the room. Judy. Repeating her name, he descends the last step and moves towards his distraught daughter. Overcome with emotion, Judy wraps her arms around her father, sobbing, Dad. Seeing an opportunity, Major West circles around to the distracted professor's blind side. And skillfully disarms John in a single stroke. Mrs. Robinson's disturbed by the bold action, shouting, Don, no! Her instincts weren't entirely wrong. The professor glares at Don with a look that could kill and announces callously that the family reunion is over. There is no John Robinson, only his body. My name is Canto. Finally letting go of Judy, the cruel Canto strides across the room, crouches down behind some oversized ceremonial urns. Then standing up, we see the bewitched man is now armed with a strange alien hand weapon that appears to be a coiled cutlass of some kind, and he warns the castaways to stay back. Oh, is that what it was? When you said the family reunion was over and he pulled out a metal corkscrew device, I thought it was an IUD. You know, I know it's kind of big, but she has had three kids. (laughs) Uh, I let that one in by saying coiled cutlass, didn't I? Okay. All right. I'll see if that one survives the censor. I'm not sure. You'll you'll never look at that scene again the same way. I can guarantee you. No, I won't. Thanks for ruining it for me, Kurt. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Maureen tries to appeal once more to whatever may remain of her husband. Don tries to restrain her, but Mrs. Robinson breaks free. Rushing to her husband's side, she begs him to come back to the spaceship with her, but it's no use. He cruelly tells her to get away from me. Wounded by his words, she drops her hands from his arms and moans in despair as she backs away from him. Major West sternly asks, What are you going to do? John matter-of-factly answers, 
You present a danger to me. I must see to it that you are out of the way. Defiant, Don demands the alien-possessed professor open that door and let them out of there. But speaking as Kanto, John explains that he doesn't take orders, he gives them. They shall remain there while he completes his plans on their spaceship. Marine angrily objects, You can't leave us trapped in here. Smirking, the blackguard sneers, Mrs. Robinson, do not worry about your children. When I leave this planet, they'll go with me. Shocked, Marine gasps, No, you can't. Oh yes, he can. Everyone will be needed to run the spaceship. Don makes his way over to her side, saying, Marine, there's no use trying to reason with him. Let's go. Glancing uneasily in John's direction, he starts to pull her along towards the door, but then at the last second, he makes another brash attempt to strip the weapon out of the professor's hand. Unfortunately, John was ready this time, and gracefully spins out of the Major's grasp before he could swipe the sword. It's another startling moment for the ladies, but the brazen attempt at subterfuge seems to have sparked the Canto-cursed castaway into a state of exhilaration. Grinning widely at the Major, he blares, Foolish Earthman! I have destroyed armies! Then you dare to pit your puny strength against me? Hmm... You almost get the feeling that Dad's been waiting to teach his daughter's boyfriend this lesson for quite a while. Yeah. Not waiting to be told, Judy runs for cover and just in the nick of time, because without warning, that coiled saber in John's hand begins to flash with cosmic energy. Now, Marine shrieks in horror and skedaddles over to join her daughter before the sparks really begin to fly. Still holding the sword he'd earlier taken away from John, Don strikes a defensive pose, but that only strikes the professor as weakness, so he strikes first. With a mighty blow of his sparkling space cutlass, Don counters the opening thrust with a well-timed parry, and so the duel has begun. As the distraught Robinson ladies look on in horror, we're treated to a swashbuckling display of action-packed, hand-weapon combat worthy of, dare I say it, Zorro. Right off the bat, the alien-possessed professor seems to be the better of the two swordsmen, and is clearly the more aggressive. Somehow, Don manages to fend off John's first powerful strikes, and narrowly dodges a sweeping slash, which impacts one of the large stone columns, causing a violent explosion. Now, did you notice the sparklers that they had attached to Kanto's weapon get thrown off the blade onto the floor in the second or third swing of Kanto's cutlass? He seems to slow down a bit after that. You know, I mean, I think maybe they realized he was going overboard. You didn't want to have the sparkler leave again. But it was a fun gladiatorial fight, despite all that. And it's worth mentioning that it's understandable why Wes would be pulling his punches to a certain extent because he doesn't want to kill John. He wants to defend himself. So John has the freedom to kill Wes, but Wes doesn't have the freedom to kill John. Mm. Now, I missed the sparkler thing, but I did notice that Don did seem to be pulling his punches a little bit. That's true. Mm. Yeah. Reeling backward from the blast of that explosion, Don loses his footing and stumbles onto the steps. But before John can deliver the coup de grace, 
the Major notices a conveniently placed shield, picks it up, and rushes back across the chamber to continue the fight. The camera cuts back to the slack-jawed ladies who are even more tormented than before. Then we flip back to the professor, who relentlessly advances on Don with more powerful cuts of his high-tech blade. The Major's shield is frustrating John's efforts to end this quickly, and in anger, he pummels the stone column again, which causes another powerful blast of flash and smoke. You know, they are in an underground cave, and if those columns support the ceiling at all, you might want to go a little easier on the columns, I'm just saying. Mm. Grimacing in rage, John keeps pouring on the heat in an ever-quickening fury of frenzied attacks. Major West seems to be weakening, but does his best to stave off the blows with his sword and shield. As Don's backed closer and closer toward the foot of the stone steps, John surges against his enemy, striking a devastatingly powerful blow against the Major's shield, then swings his weird weapon against the bug-eyed squatting statue, smashing its head clean off with another powerful explosion of cosmic sparks and flames. Oh, those cosmic sparks, they're the worst kind. <laughs> <laughs> This time, the shockwave from John's weapon blasting that statue is too much for Major West. He drops his weapons and crumples defenselessly to the ground, landing face first in the sand. With his bloodlust still up from the combat, I thought for sure it was curtains for Don. But surprisingly, John drops his saber, then reaches for something else on the ground, which I didn't recognize at first. The professor picks up the implement which appears to be an armored gauntlet of some kind, and slides it onto his right forearm. Now the ominous music and a quick cutaway to the ladies holding their breaths and each other is signaling a very bad ending for Major West. Still face down and out cold, the defeated Major's body fills the frame as we see black boots approaching. With a pitiless flip of a foot, Don is rolled over onto his back. Then mercilessly, a silver-clad arm glides down from the top of the frame. After an agonizing second, a long, razor-sharp blade shoots out from the gauntlet. Mere inches from the helpless major's head. Mm. Yeah, this villain isn't going to kill Don quickly with his coil cutlass. That's too easy. He's got to stop. Switch weapons, slip on a special 007 gauntlet with his hidden spring-loaded blade, and deliver the proper death blow. The only thing worse than being killed by a saber is to almost be killed by a saber and then switch it to the special spring-loaded knife. Uh, anything to build that tension even more. Oh, yeah. But I love the fact that he has to, like, oh, no, I'm not going to just kill you. i got to put on the right blade to do that. You know, I, I've been saving this for a long time. I'm going to get my money's worth out of this gauntlet. <laughs> Reacting in horror, Judy involuntarily screams out, No, don't! Uh-oh. Then the camera slowly pans up as the black-hearted Victor thankfully rises back away from the Major and declares, You may consider yourself fortunate. I'm usually not so lenient with my enemies. 
turning his gaze to the appalled Robinson women, who are still clutching each other for support, the demonic villain addresses them. I've spent many centuries in this cave, then adds with a sardonic smirk, perhaps you will enjoy it. With his journey to the dark side complete, Canto Robinson turns on his heels and walks towards the giant stone door, which automatically opens, allowing him to leave our three traumatized galactic castaways alive, but trapped with no hope of escape. Wow, that was a very dramatic scene, Kurt, and I love that fight. But question, did it seem odd to you that the whole time that they were in there, Don has a laser pistol strapped to his thigh, but never thinks to pull it out and use it. I mean, at least on stun. Throw me a lifeline here, buddy. What explains all that? Oh, exactly. I mean, I can understand why he didn't use it early on, because you don't want to kill Kanto, since it would also kill John. And I'm not sure that they have a stun setting. Have we ever seen them use a stun setting? No, I don't think they've actually said that they have a stun setting. So, again, maybe it's but, just the fact he didn't want to kill John, but still. Yeah, exactly. But but after Kanto reveals that he plans to kidnap the kids and starts the sword fight, you would think all bets would be off. But, you know, then again, I'm always amazed at how 99% of the audience, including myself, didn't notice that until repeated viewing. So it's just stagecraft, really, that they can get away with that. So why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it does make you wonder, you know, in a way, it would have made more sense if they had forgotten to bring the laser with them to begin with, then he wouldn't have had that out, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Then again, maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't take it with him. Maybe he found it on the floor. <laughs> oh, here it is. <laughs> no, I saw it. he had it. He had it before they went into the cave. So it was just weird that he never, he never. But, you know, he, this he, is a different time lane. Back in those days, you wouldn't fight somebody like that with an unmatched weapon it just wouldn't be sporting you know i mean if you had a sword and you had a gun you you wouldn't use it that wouldn't be fair yeah we're gonna have to wait for indiana jones to pull that kind of (laughs) subterfuge aren't we (laughs) exactly (laughs) well you already pointed out the blooper that we sort of saw with the flash powder but there's another one near the end of that really exciting sword fight there's a moment when john actually sweeps don's sword out of his hand but they do a quick cut, and instantly the sword's back in his hands. That's right before John smashes that squatting statue, which winds ah. up... Yeah. Well, maybe the force was with Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was hard to spot, but it definitely qualifies for the Alpha Control Nitpicker Award, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Well... This act is closing on a very bad note. It seems that the alien spirit has finally done what he vowed, completely taken over John Robinson's body. But we'll have to wait until after a word from our sponsor to find out what happens next. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com.
When we return from the break to start Act 4, we're back inside the Jupiter 2 with Penny, Will, and the robot. Night has fallen and the children are wearing their PJs, staring out of the main viewport. Will says it's getting late. Penny answers worriedly that she just knows something bad has happened to them. Do you think we should start to look for them? Sis isn't sure. Suppose they came back while they were gone. Just then, we see the familiar figure of Dr. Smith, dressed in nightshirt and bed cap, arriving on the upper deck in the electronic elevator. What's more, he's bearing gifts, a tray of milk and cookies. Startled by the sudden stop of the lift, he composes himself, then dons a reassuring smile and announces, Here we are, children. I prepared a nice little bedtime snack for you. None for me, Dr. Smith. Me either. Now look here, my dear young friends. You ate hardly anything at dinner. They are worried. They are not concerned with food. I don't recall having asked for your advice. I'm just as worried as you are. But starving yourselves won't help matters. We're just not hungry, Dr. Smith. Very well. Then you'd better get ready for bed. Oh, couldn't we stay up just a little longer, Dr. Smith? In the hope that the others will return. You may not stay up. When your parents are away, I am responsible for you, and I will simply not tolerate two sleepy, worn-out children on my hands. Off you go. All right, but, but will you promise to wake us up when they get back? Of course I will. Off with you. Good night, Captain. Good night. Good night, Penny. Good night, Will. Remember, brush your teeth. Irritated, Dr. Smith cuts his eyes at his cybernetic sidekick. Thank you, little mother. As the sullen siblings disappear below deck on the electronic elevator, Smith calls out, I'll be down in a few moments. Taking a seat next to the statue-like robot, the depressed doctor consoles himself by picking up the bowl of Lord Dune cookies, then dunking them in milk and stuffing his face with bite after delicious bite. Glancing at his computerized confidant, Dr. Smith worries, Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Poor dear children. Alone on this cold, cruel planet. We'll have to be extremely kind to them to the pain of their loss lessons. Pain? Loss? Cookie in one hand, bowl in the other, Smith challenges. Surely you don't believe that Mrs. Robinson or any of the others will ever return? I cannot answer that question. As for the professor, we can forget about him too. I cannot forget. They are all in my memory banks. But they'll be all right. I'll take very good care of them. Dr. Smith, the father. Yes. Dr. Smith, the mother. Yes. It does not compute. It does not compute. It does not. Oh, shut up. It does not compute. It does. Ah! That should stop your cackling. Satisfied at having the last word, Smith continues stuffing his face in golden silence. Next morning, outside the Jupiter 2, a very cheerful Dr. Smith, wearing a chef's hat and apron, greets Will and Penny as they come walking down from the ramp. He's prepared them a nice hot breakfast, and he's sure they'll enjoy it. Sporting glum faces, they aren't interested in eating now. We'll eat later if you don't mind, Dr. Smith. We want to start looking for Mom and Dad and the others. I do mind. You're not stepping one step out of this camp without eating your breakfast. But we're wasting time. Dr. Smith is right. You must have nourishment. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that for once you agree with me. It is one of the few times you are more often wrong. 
Spare me your philosophical comments, you blithering bumpkin. I also agree with Dr. Smith. Come no closer or I will destroy. There is no danger. I am a friend. Everyone turns in the direction of the voice and recoils at the sight of the black-clad figure standing at the edge of camp. Of course, no one recognizes that friend as John Robinson, not only because he is speaking in an alien voice, but his face is covered by the mummified Canto's ornate golden mask. So even though the stranger is apparently unarmed, he strikes a really threatening figure. But there were a couple of things about this that bothered me, Kurt. One, how did John come wearing that mask? When he left Don and the girls trapped in the crypt, the mask was still on that mummy in its coffin at the top of those 11 steps. Did he come back to the crypt a few minutes later and say, oh, sorry, sorry, I forgot something. Just a minute, I need the mask. (laughs) And two, where's Canto Robinson been all this time? What's he been doing? When he left the tomb at the end of act three, that was the day before. For all we know, it could have been almost 24 hours ago. Up till now, he's been driving everybody like dogs to get that ship ready for blast off into space. So why would he have dilly-dallied around and waited until the next morning to make his big debut at the Jupiter 2? Is this just plot service, or are there any possible theories here, sir? Uh, Because, Lane, (laughs) this villain has too much class to return to the tomb in humiliation to reclaim his forgotten mask. It made more sense for him to spend the day forging a new one in private rather than publicly admit his error. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, touche. Well, okay, I cannot fight that logic. (laughs) I do love that image, though. You know, the door closes, and then there's a knock on the door, and he comes back in. Sorry, excuse me. Yes. Just ignore me, please. I'll be right out of here. Well, it is interesting, though. When he's wearing the mask, he's talking in the voice of Kanto. He's talking in, mm-hmm. you know, the spirit's voice with that mask on. Yeah, and to be fair, they couldn't figure out a way for him to leave with the mask. You know, I mean, what was he going to do? Go back up and grab it and leave it? So, I mean, they couldn't figure out a way, and they just figured no one will notice. And right. Nobody right, right. but us in Alpha Control noticed. <laughs> you know, what those guys would have thought if someone had told them, do you know that in 50 years, just going to be people doing podcasts or radio programs about the show and dissecting every little scene? Mm-hmm. They would have, yeah, right. I just know I'm pissing off so many people (laughs) that love this episode. Why are you worried about where the mask came from? Don't you know this is the best episode of season one? (laughs) You know, I mean, this is part of the genius of it, really, because, I mean, when I first started catching all these continuity errors, I always thought, like, how could people be so stupid? And then I realized, well, wait a minute. I'm one of those stupid people because I didn't notice it the first time either. Exactly. This stuff wasn't put out on VHS. It wasn't put out on DVDs. It was put out on network television. And if you were going to watch it again, you were going to wait six months or three months or however long it was until summer repeat. So it was a long time and there was just no way except the very, very astute people would ever catch any of this stuff in that kind of delay for the second viewing. Yeah, You're right. Well, this is what we do, folks. So it's part of the fun, part of the fun. Well, in any event, the sight of that weirdly garbed stranger's unexpected arrival has everyone startled. Dr. Smith's face is especially filled with dread because this is not the first time he's heard that sinister voice. Approaching the breakfast table, 
The visitor halts. My name is Kanto. I'm here to help you. In what way, may I ask? I have information about the rest of your party. Where are they? Can you take us to them? Sit down and eat, and I will tell you what I know. The three castaways do as told and take their seats. But now everyone has lost their appetite and waits with bated breath for the alien's next words. Stepping closer to the table, the camera gives us a close-up of the masked visitor's face. And it's a very frightening image because although you can see just a hint of Guy Williams' mouth moving, behind the eyelets, there's nothing but blackness. That was very effective camera and lighting work to achieve that effect, and it sure added to the spookiness of it all. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that even though... You know, it is the voice of the same fellow who has been doing this all along. It's not him behind the mask. Not only would the physique be different, but the sound would be different. When he speaks, even though he's right there in their presence, you still get the echo and and the reverb when he talks. Yes. (laughs) It's like Darth Vader, isn't it? Yes. That's the only thing they're missing is a... Yeah. Towering over the seated Robinsons, the alien continues. Your parents, your sister, and Major West are unfortunately no longer on this planet. Oh no! Oh dear. They've been taken away on a spaceship to the planet Quasti. How do you know that? Because I was a member of the aliens who took them. I did not approve of what my friends were doing. As a result, they left me here. In all honesty, I must tell you I'm not here out of unselfish motives. My friends betrayed me. I seek vengeance, and you can help me attain it. We'll do everything we can, sir, but how? You have a spaceship. It is nearly ready for flight. We can take it and go to the planet Quasti. There, my friends will assist in freeing your parents. Quick cutaways show fear and uncertainty on Smith and Penny's faces, but closing in on Will's, he has a look of deadly mistrust on his. We can be a mutual benefit to each other. Rising from his seat, young Will boldly states, I don't believe a word he said. I think he's lying. William! We didn't see any other aliens or their spaceship. What about Dad? Why was he acting so strange? That was a work of my former friends. You've got an answer for everything, haven't you? Well, the rest can go with you, but not me. Turning on his heels, the young Robinson boy storms out of camp, leaving the unnerved Dr. Smith and the distraught Penny alone with the alien. I say alone, but actually... They're not really alone. The robot has been standing by the table this whole time. And during the entire exchange, he's been maintaining radio silence. You'd think his sensors would be able to detect that John Robinson was the man behind the golden mask. After all, he was the one that told everyone before that the professor was possessed by an alien spirit. Has the spirit somehow managed to short-circuit B9's computer tapes? What gives, Kurt? Well, I hate to give them a pass, because it's always more fun to point out the errors, but the robot does give an explanation in the next scene. It seems selectively enforced for the reasons you mentioned, so basically it's another force field factor, but they do throw the continuity dog a bone very shortly. Oh, good, good, good. That's all I want is just a little bone to gnaw on every now and then, and then I'm happy. (laughs) Uh. Well, in any event, after Will storms off, Dr. Smith stammers an excuse. The boy is overwrought, sir. Please forgive him. The strain of losing his parents, you do understand? 
Of course. Asserting his power, the vicious visitor closes in on Smith and ominously asks, Shall we cooperate with each other? Recoiling, Smith fakes a smile. By all means, sir. Then let's begin preparations for our departure. Oh, yes. Yes, at once, sir. With that, Canto Robinson plants himself by the airlock and waits as Dr. Smith, clutching Penny for protection, slips by the menacing malefactor, disappearing into the spaceship. Oh, dear. Yeah, well, as you pointed out, Smith should remember that voice and know that this guy is full of BS and dangerous. So either he's too cowardly to resist, which is probably what's going on, or Canto was right during their first meeting. Smith is a fool. But I love the way Canto has cleverly concocted a situation to offer a plausible explanation to get cooperation from the remaining Robinsons, even though Will sees right through it. Mm. But how Smith could possibly be willing to join this guy on a spaceship, being as scared as he is, you know, he think he would run off with the kids or something into the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. Later that night, a sullen-looking Will Robinson is alone outside the ship, seated on some cargo cases, waiting to be loaded for departure, distractedly whittling a stick, when our trusty B-9 comes rolling up. The robot's been looking for Will. My sensory units tell me you are very unhappy. Is there anything I can do? Tell me about the alien. I have not yet been able to make any computations regarding him. There is a barrier. It's not your fault. See, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. All right, I got my little bone, so I'm happy. <laughs> like yourself, I too miss the rest of the family. Alert! Alert! Suddenly, the robot raises his bubble head and extends his claws. The warning is caused by the arrival at the edge of camp of the masked menace, Canto Robinson. By the way, here's another little nitpicker award. As Guy Williams walks around the rocks and into the clearing, pay attention, you'll get a rare instance where the actor's shadow is visible on the painted cyclorama at the edge of the soundstage. It's noticeable, but honestly, I never recall seeing that before, did you? Yeah, no, it was pretty obvious, and I'm surprised that it didn't show up until the 29th episode. That's the kind of mistake you would expect early on with a new director or a different lighting crew. And once it had happens, you would think the old-timers would say, Never again! Anytime we have someone come around that corner, be sure we light them in a way that the shadows won't appear on the painted sky. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting in that regard. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, though. But it is so funny when it does happen, because it's totally in your face. You see the shadow run across the sky, you know? It's like, oh, man. (laughs) Reacting to the alien's arrival, the young Robinson leaps down from the cargo boxes and strikes a defensive pose, while for some reason, B-9 standing behind Will withdraws his arms. Hmm... The alien silently saunters into camp, then halts a few feet in front of the boys and challenges. The others are getting the spaceship ready for departure. Why aren't you helping them? The boy bites his tongue, so the alien demands. Answer me! Sporting a defiant expression, Will says. The others can go with you, but not me. No, sir, I'm staying right here. 
If Will does not go, I too will remain. Well, it seems I have a rebellion on my hands. When Penny and Dr. Smith learn what we intend to do, they will stay here also. You're being very foolish, Will Robinson. If I proved to you that everything I said to you was true, would you go with me then? Sure. But you're lying again. I know it. You judge me wrongly, Will Robinson. If you come with me, I will show you how wrong you are. All right, show me. Shall I accompany you? Stay here. You have work to do. Do as he says. I shall wait for you to return. Come. With that, Will boldly follows the black villain out of the Robinson campsite for a rendezvous with destiny. And this has disaster written all over it, Kurt. And it made me wonder, is Kanto taking Will back to the cave to lock him up in the crypt with the others? Or worse? Well, since I'm always the optimist, let me just say that it's worse. Far, far worse. (laughs) (laughs) Next, in the final dramatic scene of this harrowing tale, dawn is breaking in the sky over the distant hills of Preplanus. We see the black-clad Kanto leading Will Robinson onto an interesting, rocky, narrow ledge which looks like the geological equivalent of a pirate ship's plank, as in, walk the plank? (laughs) The alien pauses at the approach to the ledge and asks the boy, Have you ever seen this place before? No. Kanto points forward and says, Go ahead, I have something to show you. Looking unsure, nevertheless, Will complies and takes over the lead. The pair carefully walk a few yards further along the ledge, finally reaching the end of the line, and it appears that indeed, the joyride is almost over. Oh man, I was surprised Will walked ahead of him on that narrow ledge. A simple bump would have knocked him right off you. Oopsie daisy. I know. The tension was really, really thick. It was, and I just love the way it's shot from below looking up. Yeah. And so you really get the sense that, that oh my gosh, I don't even want to look down. You know? And that wasn't even a ridge. It was more like a little bridge. It's like a rock equivalent of a log crossing it. So for a while, they're on this very thin little thing. It would have been very easy for him to slip, fall, or be pushed. But, you know, this guy, he's into the theater of it all, and he's going to savor the moment. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. Well, shooting from below, the camera shows Will Robinson with the menacing alien looming close behind him, and they're high above us at the edge of a rocky crevasse. Will anxiously looks back over his shoulder at the alien, then takes another step closer to the cliff, where we get another jump scare as Will loses his footing and stumbles to his knees. Thankfully, he doesn't fall right off the ledge, But that's when Kanto reaches out with his hands. Is he going to finish Will off or help him? Neither, because instead, Will gets back on his feet and the alien drops his hands and steps even closer to the boy. Pointing downward at a stock shot of a bottomless abyss, Kanto of Kwasti speaks. Look, it reaches down to the very core of this planet. why you brought me here. Do you? 
Before we go to the agonizing, final, literal cliffhanger-style break in this episode, we get a close-up of the boy's face. Showing no fear, he answers, You're going to push me off, aren't you? Switching to a close-up of Kanto's face, For the first time, we can see John Robinson's eyes peering out through the holes in the mask as Kanto's voice speaks. Yes, Will Robinson, I am. Wow, I can't believe we're taking a break here with Will about to be murdered by his own father. Because, I mean, and the fact that he shows his eyes, you know, at that point, it makes it even worse. It's sort of like he's there and he sees and he can't stop himself. Exactly. In The Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, CBS said the aliens had to return Will before the break just so that no one would worry about him being in danger during the commercials. But here it's okay to announce that he's about to be executed by his father. Incredible. And what products are they going to hawk during the commercials? You know, are these going to be gifts? for Father's Day, which is coming up right away, real soon here, by the way, (laughs) just in case my children are listening. Uh, But I wonder, did sales fall off the same way that Will's about to? You gotta wonder. Wow. Uh, Oh, man, it is terrible. (laughs) This is one for the books. This really is. It really is. Well, Kurt, unfortunately, we are going to have to wait until after this final commercial break to find out if indeed Will's fortunes are about to take a disastrous drop. Lost in Space has been brought to you by Today's Wheaties, the cereal with a kernel full of whole wheat energy in every flake. Today's Wheaties, breakfast of champions. When we return from this unusual and frustratingly timed fifth and final break, we're looking back up at Will and the evil Canto, perched on a cliff's edge overlooking that bottomless crevasse. We're shown a repeat of the last exchange between Will and the alien before we went to break. You're going to push me off, aren't you? Yes, Will Robinson. I am. And I know why you're wearing that mask, too. So we won't know that you've taken over my father's body. You're a very bright young man. It's regrettable that you must be destroyed. But it must be done. Would you do something for me first? Would you take off your mask? I want to see my father's face one last time. Very well. Cutting to a close-up, we see the alien's golden mask slowly lifted off, revealing the familiar, if serious, face of John Robinson. His son catches his breath and speaks. Goodbye, Dad. I love you. What did you say? I love you, Dad. 
A wave of realization washes over John Robinson. But from the ether, we hear Canto's spirit demand. Why do you hesitate? Push him off. Conflicted, John resists. No. I order you to obey. It's clear from his looking around that Will hears the evil spirit's voice as well. John fights the Dark Master's commands. No, it's not... it's not right. Push him off! I command you! Cutting his eyes toward the haunted mask in his hands, John struggles to resist it with all his willpower. Sensing the good in his father, the conflict within him, Will pleads... Don't listen to him, Dad! John buckles under the strain, dropping both the mask and his knees to the ground. Will clasps his father's shoulders. We all love you! You cannot disobey me! Do as I say! Nothing stronger than the feeling we have for you, Dad! Listen to me! Listen! Listen! Resolved, John picks up the golden mask, even as Kanto continues to bellow. No! No! Then, using his last ounce of willpower, casts the mask and its demon into the vast, bottomless abyss below. No! 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 As the evil spirit's voice trails off into the darkness below, it's clear that the spell has been broken. Mentally and physically exhausted from the ordeal, John Robinson catches his breath. Will's the first to speak. He's gone, Dad. He's gone forever. Yes, well. He's gone. What do you think chased him off, sir? Looking and sounding at long last, like the all-knowing John Robinson that we know and love, he places a hand on his son's shoulder and answers. Love, Will. In all the worlds and galaxies of this universe, there is nothing stronger. Father and son embrace in a heartfelt hug, then depart the cliffside as this unbelievable story and the first season of Lost in Space ends on a touching image of what makes this series beloved by fans everywhere. Family love and affection. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on this final scene of Follow the Leader and your verdict on the episode overall. Wow. Wow, what a fantastic scene. And a really cool bottomless pit, too. And I'm not so sure that that was stock footage. Because, you know, when he throws that helmet off, you see it go down in that crevasse. I'm almost sure it was stock footage because I think that was actually a rock that was falling down into the uh, abyss. Okay, well that was going to be my guess. Is it yeah. was it something else that got thrown down there? If that was a rock, that was beautiful because it fit perfectly with that mass being thrown off. I mean, he throws it and then you see it go down there and that's what really sold it. Mm. And you know, some of the stock footage doesn't match because it just has a different feel to it, but this matched perfectly. Right. This is the reason why this episode had to be black and white because if that was stock footage, they didn't have another scene of that in color. I could tell you that. No. It really blended wonderfully with it. It was such a, that was one of the most powerful scenes. That scene and that bit with Smith and Penny are two of the most uh, hard-to-swallow scenes to watch. It's hard to say these lines because it is so powerful. It's just chock full of 
you know, iconic symbolism and it's just great. So, and you know, even for me to deliver that line right without trying to do it differently because it's just so powerful. That's how it is saying those lines is when he's basically about to kill that boy. Yes, Will Robinson, I am. That is a really hard line to utter out because it's just so powerful. Oh, it is. It's very emotional. It's very powerful. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of that scene in Return of the Jedi when Luke willingly goes with his father, Darth Vader, to the Death Star to meet the evil emperor. Only in this case... Canto Robinson is Darth Vader and Palpatine all rolled into one. So, but there's they- one major difference. Luke is an adult, and this is little eleven year, you know, Will Robinson. Exactly. And to see a father about to kill his child, mm-hmm. you know, this is just like the ultimate betrayal. It's bad enough to kill your son under any circumstances, but to do it when he's 11 years old and, you know, oh man. And the way he basically says, I know what you're going to do. And he, and he's not even scared. It's just sort of like, if you have to do it, I do it. That's how strong his love is for his father. Oh, it's, it's yeah. powerful. Maybe a better comparison is the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac. Mm-hmm. I went to Sunday school, but that was one I could just never understand. Why would God want Abraham to show his devotion by having him, you know, kill his son, Isaac? So it's really strange. But gosh, so many things, just a flood of emotions. Now, And you know that story you're talking about with uh, Abraham and Isaac, that's the one Old Testament story that makes me think, this is a guy acting like he's totally insane. He's acting like a total schizophrenic psychopath. He's about ready to go murder his son because he hears these voices in his head. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is God. Maybe it isn't God. But the thought that he's willing to do that, I mean, wow. Yeah. Abraham's called the father of the three great religions, but uh, I couldn't be that kind of father. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I think if I were editing the Bible, that'd be the one chapter I would rip out, you know, and just throw it in the fireplace because it just undermines. So, because, I mean, the whole Bible is basically a relationship between God the Father and the children. And here you're saying, Hey, yeah. it's okay for the father to murder your children, which I guess is an analogy to what happened when he sends you to hell. I guess he is kind of murdering his own kids, but you know they do ask for it. But here, Will doesn't ask for it at all. No. Will is like the ultimate good kid. Exactly. And boy, he sure stands up at the last moment like, I just want to see your face. That's all I want to do. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, this episode did leave us with a few questions, Kurt. Why don't we just get into your assessment of the episode overall? I think I know where you're going to go with this, but go ahead. Oh, I hated this episode. I think it was one of the worst that there's ever been, actually. (laughs) Uh, No, obviously, I'm kidding. Uh, It was very powerful. You know how I talk about expectations spoiling the effect? A lot of people told me this was a great episode, and I was worried that it couldn't deliver, but it did deliver. And they closed out season one with this extremely memorable episode. We've had episodes with monsters and scary scenes before, but this was the closest thing to a full-fledged horror story that we've seen up until now, and henceforth, I'll bet you. It's great that they shot this one in black and white, too, because it looked and felt like a, a classic episode of Outer Limits. As a matter of fact, I just so happened to be listening to another podcast this same week, the Outer Limits podcast, which is an excellent series hosted by Victor Gamboa, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's devoted to the original 1960s TV series. Now, that episode he profiled was called Corpus Earthling. And the plot was about a human who becomes possessed by an ancient alien 
Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And it also created a similar feeling of paranoia as the main character, played by Robert Culp, is being hunted down by this possessed human. These aliens end up taking over the body of his wife, which is pretty chilling as well. But even that story, with the expert fear mongers at Outer Limits, failed to deliver the same kind of paranoia and betrayal that this episode of Lost in Space achieves. In fact, I'll be honest, I normally love having my kids watch Lost in Space. But not this one. That This scene where the father is preparing to murder his son is just too much for the kids. And it has nightmares and bedwetting written all over it. <laughs> so so since I get that change the diapers, we're skipping this episode until, until they're older. But I loved it. And I'm really glad CBS did not censor it or dumb it down. It's funny, you know, I know I saw this episode at least once or twice when I was a kid. But I didn't have all that clear a memory of it. And after I watched it, I thought, oh my gosh, it didn't disappoint at all. I don't think it would have worked for every episode in Lost in Space to be this dark, but it was a great way to end the season. We started off with a reluctant stowaway, and we wound up with Follow the Leader, two kind of dark episodes bookending the entire season. Wouldn't it be kind of funny if the reason that they put it in there was because everyone's saying, well, you know, I have this one episode that has this beautiful stock footage of a cliff and it's black and white next season we're going to color so i i've been putting this one off because i think it's dark but i think we're gonna have to run it if we're gonna run this episode at all it's gonna have to be this last episode (laughs) (laughs) can't you just see him doing that you know he can't he can't afford to waste that beautiful stock footage and it is great stock footage it really worked great i did want to mention like you we've talked about earlier there was a lot of cutting that was done on this episode because it was running long And one of the major cuts was there was an entire tag scene after John and Will leave the cliff. It was sort of a comedic tag scene that had Dr. Smith playing psychiatrist to the robot. And it was supposed to end on a chuckle ha 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 note. And I'm definitely glad they cut that out because it would have totally spoiled the the gravitas, if you will, of the way that episode ended. Yeah, and the way that this thing was structured, the epilogue was right in the center of the cliffhanger where he's about to kill his son. You know, normally that's where they end the, the, the serious part and they come back to the funny epilogue, where in this instance, it was the, I'm about to throw you off the cliff and now a word from our sponsor. And then we come back and instead of the comic epilogue, we get that, wow, the one-two punch in the gut. And maybe that's why we had that extra fifth commercial break. Normally we only have four commercial breaks. There's one at the main credits, there's the one at the end of each act. So it's a total of four breaks. And this was the fifth one. So that kind of could explain why they did it because it's mm-hmm. very, very unusual. So anyway, yeah. The only other lingering question we have is what happened to Don, Judy, and Marine trapped in the <laughs> Temple of Doom? But I guess we can assume that all's well that ends well there. Well, you know, I mean, John could have remembered sealing them up there and went back to free them, or maybe they finally found that forgotten laser pistol and cut their way out. (laughs) (laughs) Good point, good point. You know, they probably wrote this story as kind of a please come back to season two Guy Williams episode. (laughs) But if Guy thought, finally, they're giving me the scripts that they promised, he's going to be in for a big surprise for season two (laughs) and season three. Uh, that's funny. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhangers that were shown at the end of this episode. I say cliffhangers 
because unlike the DVD or Blu-ray sets which tease Season 2's premiere episode at the end of Follow the Leader, that's not what viewers in 1966 saw. The first time this episode aired on April 27th, it was followed by the first summer repeat, Attack of the Monster Plants, which seems an odd choice, but remember, they only repeated 19 of the 29 episodes, and CBS wanted everyone to forget about the homicidal version of Dr. Smith, so none of the darker first five episodes got reshown. Also, interestingly, Follow the Leader was not the last summer rerun aired before the start of the new season. Instead, Leader was the 16th rerun, and when it aired the second time, it got a cliffhanger for the rerun of One of Our Dogs is Missing. The honor of being the last summer repeat belongs to Wish Upon a Star, which aired for the second time on September 9th, 1966. When it did, viewers got the shock of seeing a cliffhanger for Blast Off into Space in vibrant, full color. Well, (laughs) as vibrant as it could appear on those early Zenith, RCA, Admiral, and Magnavox TV sets. Still, it must have seemed as magical as the scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's black-and-white Kansas world gives way to the colorful Land of Oz on the other side of the rainbow. Things are going to get pretty colorful for Lost in Space in more ways than one during Season 2, so I think we'll save talking about the cliffhanger that teases Blast Off into Space for our special Season 1 wrap-up and Season 2 preview show, Kurt. Well, you know, I hate to rain on your parade, but remember in 90% of the households that were watching that Season 2 preview, it was just another black and white episode. (laughs) It certainly wasn't (laughs) ours. We didn't get a color TV set until the 70s. Yes, I think we were in the same boat, sir. I think Mm -hmm. we were in the same boat. Classic. Classic, classic. Well, all right. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time for that special wrap-up and preview episode. And that should be a lot of fun. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. I told you the name is Kanto! Oh, I'm sorry. It's just headache again. I'll see you next week. Same time, same station. (laughs) Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.